Hello. Hello. Oh, you didn't ask about the stone show, but we'll cover that another time. <laughs> <laughs> How was that? You still got the nosebleed seats, and you're just basically watching the TV screens. Well, you know what happened? You know, this is like a few days after she passed, and I almost didn't go, seriously. Yeah, I understand. And I, I just wasn't feeling it. But I said, oh, I got, I got to go. And I got there, and my friend texted me uh, from Chiller. He said, where are you? I said, I'm on these seats. He pops up, and he comes out with bracelets. He goes, you can go to the floor. You oh, and nice. your friend. I said, no seats? He goes, no. I said, you know what? I'm not 100% right now. I don't think I can stand for three hours. He goes, Lou, it's just stones. I said, look. So I talked to him. He lost his cats last year. He lost two in a row. He goes, yeah, I, I got you. I got you. But I'll be around if you need me. And I said, you know, it was really sweet. It was very understanding. And it wasn't a kick kick myself in the ass moment. It was just like, I, I, I don't think I was able to do that. Yeah. I was so rough. I went and talked to my boss at the time because it was like a month in, and I'm still like, I'm still screwed up. I don't know what to do here. And I know it's a yeah. cat, but I mean, you know, you live with him for 15 mm. years, and then you get really attached. Yeah, and then it's gone. Yeah. And so I could, but here's the thing though: there were four pens. Literally, there was like circles. There was there was the runway. Left and right, there was a huge pen, and at the end of the runway, there was two other pens, and then one other, so five, one at, the, one at the end, so five circles. And from up where I was, I was like, so there's like all this free space, but my bracelet would get me into one of those pens. That looks pretty weird. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I mean, literally, okay, so he's going to come out to the runway, I'll be right there, but... It looked kind of weird. I guess that's crowd control and stuff like that. But I was like, you know what? I'll stay here. It's okay. A pleasure being with the much older people who were doing dirty deeds, done dirt cheap, which <laughs> made me proud to be younger than them. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, reading between the lines yeah. made me think, guys, what are you doing? Well, it's um, funny. I was talking to a doctor one time, and you know, they usually when you come in for stuff all the time, especially in these like clinics or whatever, they yeah. ask you, "Okay, so you're doing any drugs?" And I always laugh at them. I was like, "Seriously?" It's like, "No, you'd be surprised. We get people that are in their 70s and 80s that come in here and they're shooting up and they're doing pills and." Uh, uh, I was like, "Well, I guess uh, they were the hippies." <laughs> oh, oh, there, there was nearby me. There was like visibly older, and you know, I was like, there was one guy. I was like, "Sir, you need help?" I only have two beers because, you know, at this point, I'm still not into, like, partying. You know what I mean? And and so he passed me several times. At the last, most of the time, there was somebody with him. The last time, I said, oh, sir, you need help? No, I'm okay. He never came back. So I guess he went home. Great show. Great show. And you probably won't find a bad review, which is something, of any of the sh uh, 16 or 17 shows. They got one or two left. I don't know. I I was stymied because after seeing them as many times as I did, and we'll get right to Al, I was really surprised that I didn't hear the usual sound. What I heard was something like them trying to approximate the sound of these singles. And it was really fun. Like when they did 2000 Man, I was like, oh, you guys are trying to sound like Satanic Majesties. When they did Let's Spend the Night Together, like, you guys have been listening to this record. So it's, yeah, I was like, 
You know, this isn't bad. Yeah, okay, you're playing the war horses. You guys have been listening to this stuff. Do you think it's because they figure, okay, they're getting old, let's go back, get the stuff right again, and so we can go I out think with a bang? So. Yeah. I think so. I think so. And um, skeptic that I am, you know, I'm a very big skeptic, even about my favorite band. Yeah, I'm a skeptic about a lot of things, but even about my favorite band, I felt a lot of the songs they played, they definitely listened to the records a lot, the tapes, whatever they did, they listened to them a lot. And almost every show had one or two diamonds in the rough, like amazing. And and I, I'm really glad that for once, you know, this guy Daryl's been playing bass with them for like 20 years. And and like, not only did they give him a showcase on this year, but they just let him go with it for a while until Jagger had to stop him. <laughs> all right, all right. You know. <laughs> Really nice. Um, they did a nice thing, but yes, Midnight Rambler, we know this song. Oh, Ad Infinitum. They they segued into this slow blues thing. I was like, hey, this is cool. But did no. they do Cocksucker Blues? <laughs> <laughs> no, never say never. Uh, they're supposedly, they were, they were kind of teasing us before the tour. There's... A new CD, new stuff. So I would assume, if anything, they're probably going to do this tour, release that, do a few select dates, and that's, then call it quits. I mean, because if anything, to be honest, Charlie really... Oh, Charlie's been a mess for a long time, yeah. No, he was, he was a good form. I have to say he was a good form, but he, yeah, he's visibly tired. And, you know, the guy's, the guy's 78, 79. He's the oldest. Um... Come on, it's been like, what, 15, 20 years since that incident with his wife. There's like, yeah, I find him walking around, like, wandering around in circles down in the basement. It's like waiting for the soccer game to come on. It's like, Charlie, it's not on yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a thing. And But if if they want to release this, if they do release this and they want to do a few select dates, it would be smart to do a few in London and a few in New York, and then that's it, if they can do that. You know, somebody said to me there, how come they're not playing the garden? I said, look, you got basketball, you got hockey, you got soccer, you got all these things. The just scheduling is a nightmare. But I, but I did say, I'm sure if this happens, it's already been in, it's in the planning stages. So, never say never. Yeah. You know? Especially after mixed heart attack and everything else. I mean, oh, the guy was in great form. Well, you know, I had some guy that I used to work with that was you know, older. And he went in, he was gone from work for a while, and it turned out he was having some kind of heart surgery. He says, yeah, they found a hole in my heart, and they did, I don't know what they did to him to patch it up. I don't think they gave him a pacemaker or anything. They just kind of fixed it. And he's like, yeah, I feel younger than ever, you know, because I didn't realize I wasn't getting enough oxygen or whatever. So he was actually really lively the last couple of times I saw him. And then, of course, you know, being in better health, he's like, fuck this place and quit. <laughs> You're <Yeah>. tired. <laughs> But, you know, it, I actually saw it, like you're saying, the guy was, like, in better shape after the operation than he was beforehand, which is amazing. Yeah, so. yeah no, no, I mean, you know, no out of breath like the 89 tour, the 82 tour, no huffing and puffing, no, um, no, the only funny thing they did, they do three acoustic songs, and they, they pick and choose for those, and they, they do, they come halfway out to the midway. And uh, he goes, we're going to do Painted Black. And Keith is like, no, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, no, we're not. We're going to do Sweet Virginia, uh, Dead Flowers. And I forgot the third one. But I was like, why? Wow, everybody was laughing at that. <laughs> and Keith, 
I don't know. You know, for the last 15 years, he let his hair go to his natural color ever since his accident. He's been doing the headband thing, and he's just been looking like shit. His hands were looking gnarly, you know, from the arthritis. Sully decides to dye his hair. Okay. And his hands look fine, much better. And the guy's full of energy. And, and then Ronnie is doing these metallic riffs. I'm like, so who are you playing with when you're not working with these guys? <laughs> <laughs> I remember him in the 80s popping up, and I don't know if he was playing with bands that were like heavier rock and metal and stuff, but he was popping up in all these like teen sex comedies and shit, and so you'd be there with like Lee Ving or something, raiding somebody's yeah. refrigerator, or, or Lemmy from Motorhead. And I was like, what the hell? Ron Wood? <laughs> yeah, Lemmy, yeah, he was playing with the Cranberries, he was playing with a lot of different people. And the funny thing was, I was like, this is really metallic. But you know what? It kind of works because it makes Keith work work harder. And I was like, so, you know, the first thought in my head is like, who have you been playing with, man? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, that's okay. After all that, folks, you're listening to Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, we're not talking about Cats and Stones, but Al Pacino on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So good evening, and welcome to the second episode of the ninth season. Can you believe we're that far in? 75 episodes are close to it. Damn. Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. And as you can tell, I still haven't thought of a new title for you beyond the virago of vituperativeness and the maven of sleaze. So uh, how are you doing today, Lewis? I'm doing, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Uh, Al Pacino is definitely someone I've been thinking on and off to tackle because yeah. uh, he's a legend. He's a, a firebrand, if anything. And he's certainly been in, in enough major and minor movies to call attention to himself. Also, he's off kilter. Yes. He's, he's unusual. He's been in enough stuff to be of interest to somebody like me who really hates mainstream stuff, and we'll get to that in yes. a minute. Yes, yes. And, and we'll get to the shouting out because there's a reason <laughs> for that, because because of the stage background, I believe. But you take it from here. So, born in, of all places, Harlem and raised in the Bronx, forced to leave an already broken home when he made the choice to pursue acting, Al Pacino was born tough and lived it as well, being known as a troublemaker and a fighter in school. He actually won the, quote, triple crown in getting not only an Oscar, but an Emmy and a Tony for work across film, television, and stage, which is a fairly rare achievement, to say the least. He did study under Strasberg and the much-hated method, but he graduated to that after honing his craft at another New York-based theatrical school, which may account for his rising above the usual mumbly peg and borderline schizophrenic I am the devil absurdities you see in folks like Brando, De Niro, or Pitt, and which took down more fragile egos like Dean and Monroe. 
Impressing Francis Ford Coppola enough to get cast in what wound up being three Godfather films in the pivotal role of Michael Corleone, perhaps appropriate as his family hailed from that city in Italy, Pacino wound up starring in several films that were touchpoints of a generation, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, and Justice for All, all of which featured him as a sort of counterculture anti-hero, standing up to a corrupt system at great personal cost alternating his later career between various mob film roles trading on his Godfather cash and more interesting oddities like Cruising, Sea of Love, and even the much-beloved Scent of a Woman. Join us as we talk one of the greatest, most intense, and yet nuanced actors of our time, the one and only Al Pacino, an actor's actor. Now, one interesting point, which you may raise an eyebrow to when we get to films like Dog of the Afternoon or Cruising, Al never married. He was involved with a surprising number of notable actresses over the years, though, including 80s hottie Beverly D'Angelo. I'm sure you all know her from the vacation films, if nothing else. Wacky 60s starlet Tuesday Weld. And 70s heavy hitters like Diane Keaton, Jill Clayburgh, Kathleen Quinlan, most of whom he met while starring in films alongside them. I have to warn you straight off, this was a strange one for me, because I have a few favorites among his career. You might have stuffed some of them out from the promo and intro already. But sadly, those are only a portion of the man's work, much of which swings way too far into the mainstream and lingers in the cesspool of American mob films for my personal taste. So while I love the man as an actor, and I think his performances are dynamic enough to stand out even in a noted piece of shit like Jiggly, this one's got a lot more misses than hits filmically so far as I'm concerned. So don't be surprised. Just realize that when a guy with his talent does actually line up with a good film, it's damn good. Just don't be expecting me to praise the ones that everyone else does. So there might be some surprises for people here. Oh, no, I, I think you did very well on that. I might be doing some heavy hitting, uh, heavy hitting, <laughs> heavy lifting. Some portions, on, uh, some portions. Yeah, I, I don't want to be like, well, what was that gay film? Like a Joe something, whatever. You know, heavy lifting, heavy machines, whatever. Uh, <laughs> Joe Gage. Uh, Joe Gage, heavy machinery, heavy lifting. You know, give me that big cock. Uh, no, so, no. I might be, I might be doing some heavy lifting on some of the later movies. But, uh, yeah, there's hit and misses, but there's an occasional oddball diamond in the rough. Although, yeah, I'm actually up to speed with this, though, because I just saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where he's in it. and so The Irishman uh, didn't come out yet, right? I'm still working on that. The Irishman didn't come out yet, but I did see the promos, and so I got comments on that. So, um, And I've seen more of these than you think. Oh! <laughs> Now, I'm actually here to praise Al. Uh, I really do like him. And, yes, he, he, he worked with uh, – he, he actually tried for the actor's studio was rejected when he was younger. And he went to HB Studios. I know a lot of people, my ex-wife worked for them. I worked with them. And then he went back to the actor's studio when he was a little older. So he worked with Lee Strasberg, who he actually wound up working with on film. Yes, a couple of films. Mm-hmm. A couple of films, yeah. So, yes, method acting. Well, yes and no, because I think Al Pacino, and that is his name, I think he's one of those guys that takes his the toughness that he had growing up. You know, his mom died early, his broken home, his grandparent died early. You know, he was, he was, I read something where he was virtually homeless, you know, li- living with friends or on the street. While he was like showing up for acting roles, you know, off 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 Broadway, you know, it was like probably the Lower East Side kind of theater gigs. Um, so I mean, this guy was a struggler. So all that imbues everything. So when you he eventually got when he was eventually allowed, I rephrase that, allowed to join the Lee Strasberg Studio, actor studio, which is very hard to get into back in those days. Now Strasberg 
denied a lot of people. And his acolytes, people that were like his people, denied a lot of people in his stead. They were like, well, you don't have it. That's it. Get out. But, 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 get out. He worked people hard. And the whole thing with method acting, you know, there's, there's pros and cons for that. Yes, I agree. And, and some people he worked blisteringly hard. And Al Pacino probably is one of those guys. He worked blisteringly hard and creating, you know, this stuff is written down. A script is written by the scriptwriter, and the director hires somebody, and here's the script. You know, back in these days, at least, back in the old days, 70s, early 70s, mid-70s, early 80s, as presented to an actor, actor's agent, then to an actor, or if you're agent list, to an actor through word of mouth. And, you know, you're going to take this part. You're, you're broke, penniless, nearby, almost. And you think you can do this. And some people, it looks, some people will go to the edge. Oh, I have to play a junkie. Maybe, maybe I have to hang out with junkies. You know, that, that's the method acting thing. And that's my problem with it. Because some of these people get really deep into it and it kind of wrecks them. Temporarily, in other cases, like Monroe, permanently. Sure. And I think that's ridiculous, especially like, you know, I, I mentioned this specifically, the thing about Angel Heart. Oh, De Niro was the devil. Everybody was scared of him on set. Bullshit. You know, really? So, but then you get somebody like Pacino that there's no way that, let's just say somebody like a Humphrey Bogart or something. Okay, yes, they are who they are, a Clark Gable. They were a character they brought to their presence to screen. Yes. But they were always yes. kind of themselves. No matter, all right, Bogart was a little more nuanced, but they were always themselves no matter what role they were in to some extent or another. Whereas somebody like Pacino is bringing more of this method thing in the positive sense where he could become a role. Yes, you can still tell us Pacino, but you know, comparing something like... I don't know, uh, let's just say Son of a Woman to Cruising to Dog Day Afternoon. Those are really three different animals. Mm. And that's the good of it. That's what you can get out that's positive. I just tend to see more of the bullshit. And there's too many people out there, like, even, even though people love him, like a Brando, which is like, oh, please. <laughs> I always well, hate well, the method because of that. Brando's a problematic animal for me because as much of the immense acolytes he's got over the years. He doesn't really deserve them. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's you saying that, yes. but uh, in my eyes, uh, he's a he's freaking nature. I, I don't know what to make of the guy. I, I don't know what to make of him. I think some directors didn't know what to make of him. <laughs> yeah, he went to the same places pretty much, you know, to, uh, to learn and hone his acting skills. But he, he probably comes from that earlier generation that james dean thing but then james dean died really really young he was one of the ones that had problems with it you're tearing me apart and he really took that to heart and lived that way and died young yeah that's another problem with method but brando is 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 another thing and and i don't think anybody will ever you know there's been books i've actually read one or two over the years he's you, you can't figure that guy out i mean if you ask me when my saying he's a bad actor no my saying he's a great actor Sometimes. Bad actor is not really what I'm saying. It's just, uh, he doesn't work. It, you know what it is? It's the mumbly peg thing that he brought, which, which is why I mentioned Brad Pitt. Same thing. People that just start well, going blah, 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 blah into their chest and loud, they're really realistic. Yeah, but I can't fucking understand them. But, Speak your but, lines. But, You're an actor. But in defense of Brad Pitt, though, he has surprisingly good moments where he wakes up. Like, 
of all things at World War Z, which which is really good. And this this new thing, which is probably the best thing he ever did, this Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He's not the star, but he is. We'll get to that much later on. But anyway, let's shoot the owl. And I guess you want to go to Panic? Yes, actually. That's it's actually his second film. Technically, this is one that kicked off his career. This is the one everybody knows. And it's really where he got to be himself or the Pacino that we more or less know from here on out for the first time. So The Panic in Needle Park, 1971. Al kicks off a career filled with gritty, shouty, borderline criminal performances with this New York nasty gram that can be summed up as leaving Las Vegas two decades early and without all the comparatively safe Hollywood gloss. Talk about New York films from the 60s through the early 80s. This fucking thing is hard to watch through and through. Al's a junky piece of shit who's also a low-rent dealer. When this Manson girl type of a skanky hippie chick winds up falling for the guy after a botched abortion from a prior boyfriend mind, things really start to go downhill for both of them. Within minutes of film time, she's scoring drugs for him, turning tricks. Both of them are hanging around shooting galleries, popping veins and needles in close-up, real-time detail. He's also related to a low-rent second-story man who convinces him to join him on a heist. He goes down for burglary. She goes down for hooking. She gets out first, hooks to the point where she's even screwing his brother for cash, and gets even more hooked on drugs in the process. He gets out. There's lots of fights and screaming. There's a big bus set up by the local cops, which is where the title comes from. There's some unpleasantness involving their getting a puppy, which probably drowns while they shoot up. It's fucking terrible. Worse, there's that whole cinema verite come experimental film thing going on that was so big around the late 60s, early 70s. I guess, if you think the technique and feel of Woodstock as boiled through Midnight Cowboy in the last movie, you might wind up with something similar, but it still wouldn't be as depressingly grim and dreary as this. I like gothic darkness, universal blackness, a palpably sinister feel, atmosphere. This kind of thing is like Last House on Dead End Street meets Last House on the Left by Ways I Spin in Your Grave, but without any of those dark exploitation elements that might draw somebody to films like that. It's just the way I remember the early to mid-70s being, depressing, dreary, overcast, <laughs> and miserable. It's a terrible film unless you want to show it to annoying sycophant friends who won't stop going on about how great leaving Las Vegas is. Lock him in a room with his fucker playing, steal all the controllers, come back in two hours. That'll shut him up. <laughs> Well, I, I remember the early 70s. I lived through them. Yeah. I mean, actually, through the mid-70s and the late 70s. Mm-hmm. This this was the... Uh, where did this take place? Uh, somewhere between 71st and 79th Street. It was like Gramercy. Gramercy Park. Well, it was supposed to be Gramercy, but I think it was shot around the 70s. And it was still looking like that. Yeah, Grim. Um which, by the way, if you don't know Gramercy Park, it's ridiculous. It's, it's a joke. It's not really a park. It's this little kind of corner on almost like a piece of sidewalk in the middle of the street. <laughs> yes, down around the 20s, 23rd Street yeah. area. Yeah, he's phenomenal in it. Kitty Wynn, who really was an actress who was quite good, another theatrical actress who couldn't really swing it into the big time. I mean, you know, she had a part in The Exorcist couple of other things she she may have had issues i don't know maybe that that is the reason for her not making it into the big time paul servino is in this a couple other people you might recognize by face much younger versions al's jittery but it's a grim movie to watch it's hard to watch i agree with you and and it's man this this a great movie chris christopherson also the something Busby to Berkeley, Dealing Blues. You know, Chris was a great actor when he was young. He actually was. And a firebrand. And, and he's still a good actor on, on, on occasion, you know? People don't Hell, always remember. Stand out and play. Yeah, people don't always yeah. remember because of his singing career, doing the country music or whatever. But he actually was a decent actor going even before his yeah. career, I think. Uh, or thereabouts, you know, like 
it's neck and neck. But you know, you know Chris Chris Christopherson was a great actor. I think he was great in some things, and and Al was phenomenal in this. But Al was also scary in this because here's a new actor playing this. You know, it's 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 now Jerry Schatzberg who directed this. Yeah, you mentioned this. You mentioned that it's like you know it's hard to watch, etc. This guy worked in TV. He was a TV director, so he he probably got. I, I don't want to go too hard into research. You know, he, he probably got the opportunity to do something different from episodic television, like the script, thought it was something different, like the cast, the raw, the hungry, the new. And this is the thing that's happening at the time. Shooting galleries, squatters in the Lower East Side, which went on until the 90s. This whole gig going on. And I think Schatzberg was really probably drawn to this unfortunately it's one of the few really good even though it's a hard film to watch it's one of the really few good films in jerry shatsburg <laughs> oeuvre as a director i'll leave it at that because we're not here to praise or yeah it, you know. it's not a bad film in that sense like oh what a piece of shit no, but it's just, it is a piece of shit cause it's, it's hard to watch <laughs> No, I wouldn't see. I, I wouldn't. It's hard to watch. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's a piece of shit. It's hard to watch. And Bow's phenomenal, which led to Francis Ford Coppola's putting together a film version of Mario Puzo's The Godfather. Yes. So, Godfather, I'll take them all at once here 72, 74, and then all the way up in 1990. Now, here's where I surprise you. Oi, if you don't think having to cover these films are tough, you just don't know me. Because I hate mob films, much less ones that run for three hours plus a piece. I mean, look, I love Policio Tecci, I love 70s cop shows, both domestic and UK based, but that's a mm. different animal. Now, I've even enjoyed a few Italian films like people like Damiano Damiani that dealt with the mob in a manner closer to Mario Puzo than typical for the genre, like Day of the Owl, which was released here as Mafia, or some of those Fernando DeLeo films. But that's Italy, and if anyone's going to do this stuff right, it's them. You know, that's their people, they know this stuff. But when you start talking about folks like Scorsese, Coppola, whoever, no, I just tune right the fuck out. It doesn't work. American filmmakers are making a very different kind of film than what I just described. It's more drama with violence and all this family bullshit than any kind of, like, cop or crime action film. About the closest I get, really, is those two Duke Mitchell films, which are a mess, but they're fun in their own way. So here we have the single most beloved mob film series ever lensed. Oscar winning, made the career of Dementia 13's Francis Ford Coppola, and who did they star? <laughs> the first one, Mumbly Method Man, Marlon Brando, who I never really liked in anything outside his depressive transgressive in Last Tango in Paris, and even there he was bloated, balding, and mumbling into his chest. And this is the clown they get $5 million to for about 10 minutes of work in Superman? Brando stuffs his cheeks with cotton and rasps mumbles all his lines as various mob families pull various intrigues on one another vying for top dog. I mean, there's memorable scenes in there, you know, the horse head in the bed, fish in the box, all this crap. Eventually he dies of a heart attack, and Al, who was off in the military and didn't want anything to do with the family business, winds up taking over. Nino Rota delivers a particularly cloying score throughout these. There's a lot of big 70s names in the first one, like James Caan, Talia Shire, Diane Keaton, Fish, Abe Bogota, and Robert Duvall floating around, but... Ugh. All I can say for it, the first one is better than the ones that follow. I know that's controversial, too. Part two is even more of a mess, with about half of it being a flashback to Brando as a kid in Sicily. Of course, he's not in it. Escaping from being gunned down by the local capo and sailing to New York City, making his way up through the ranks until we get to where the first film started. But obviously, they were able to do this cheaper with younger actor or younger actors. The other half of the film is about Al's Michael Corleone and his family falling apart after an attempted hit on them. Because they showed up, oh, look, he's getting darker, he's getting more paranoid, he's losing his family, whatever the hell, by becoming a mobster. But it's all boring melodrama stuff, like the wife having an abortion, trying to keep the kids away from his influence, 
influence, his throwing her out, this whole long attempt to put a hit on a squealer during a government investigation of his operations. Ooh, the excitement. This one tags in Joe Spinell, Robert De Niro, Troy Donahue, Method Man Lee Strasberg to make up for losing a lot of them, the big names from last time around. Al seems too clean-cut and subdued for me here, particularly by comparison with the other films we're talking about tonight. I really never got all the clamor and love over these films, I'm sorry. There's a much belated sequel in 1990 that sort of touches on the same territory as The Bankers of God, but I'd recommend that film over this one any day. Sofia Coppola, who's you know, not too bad-looking if you like the type, uses nepotism to get a part in Daddy's movie, and she can be cute in the right outfit, but she ain't much of an actress. Al's a lot older here and trying to go legit. He's donating to charities, he's working with the church, there's a lot more location filming in Italy, and a bit too much of Andy Garcia trying to do a sexed up Pacino. About the biggest names they can tag in this time are Bridget Fonda and George Hamilton, but that's just a lot right there. But there's a lot less hazy cheesecloth filming, so at least visually, this one's a lot more watchable, but it's not much of a film. And in my take, none of them are. You've so much work to do, man. What's the matter for you? Uh... All right, so I saw The Godfather when it first came out, and it is what's well, problematic, and always has been, because Coppola beforehand had only made a few, I think, Roger Corman-type movies, and probably one or two for Corman. Yeah. Dimension 13. Dimension 13, so he actually worked for Corman. I think he did a couple of things, pickup shots on, what's that famous beach in California? Uh, Bronson Canyon? Yeah, you know, there's like a, a cave and a beach water area nearby, and so... You know, he, he did this, and so I'm not bothered as much by Brando with stuff in the cotton. He really wanted this part, so he auditioned for it. And so this is right around or after or before or during Last Tango. So, you know, he was still looking like a human being. <laughs> so, so you know, he, he, he had, like, fake dentures made from a dentist, and he stuffed his face with cotton. He really, really wanted this part. And I think they were kind of like, they didn't really even give it to him. And to my knowledge, he actually really tried hard for this. <laughs> and and they finally said, okay, maybe you can do it. Maybe you can play somebody who's 70-something years old. Because around this time, you know, Brenda was nowhere near that age. All right, so you name-checked everybody who's in this. So there's no reason for me to, you know, repeat the names. But, oh, I think Al was really interesting. Al Pacino was very interesting because he played predominantly very quiet. Yes, he wasn't into the family business, which is the mob business. And he just came out of the army. And, you know, uh, he met Kate, which is played by Dan, Dan Keaton, this woman. He, he met nice girl. And, you know, he's like he's trying to not tell her he's involved with the mob. And so there's this whole thing going on where uh, – Actually, Robert Duvall, I always thought, was really good in all these pictures, because Robert Duvall was consigliere. He was the counselor. You know, he was like, not only dealt with the finances of the family, la famigliare, <laughs> but he dealt he dealt with decisions. You know? So that's why he was the counselor, consigliere. And I thought he was a really terrific, because... Um, he counseled, and, and there, there there was a great, like for Al Pacino, there was a great changeover scene because he just didn't want to do this life. He didn't want to do this thing. And there's this scene where after they make the attempt on Vito, Marlon Brando's life, and he's in the hospital, near death, but he, he pulls through, but he's scarred. Al goes to this Italian restaurant in Little Italy to meet with the chief of police, Sterling Hayden, and a bunch of other famous faces we know. And um, he goes in beforehand. Gun is left in the toilet, you know, where you flush. And, you know, 
blah, blah, blah. So he goes to do the meeting and, you know, I realize it's going sour anyway. So I'm going to go to the bathroom, get the gun and fucking just shoot these guys point blank. That's a turning point for him. And then when, when Vito Genovese, uh, when Vito Corleone dies much later. Make it a little yeah. too real there. We didn't say that name. <laughs> no, but that's who it was modeled on, right? There is no mafia. There is no mafia. Well, you have to read my upcoming book, which is actually in the process, actually. Shell. So when Vito Corleone dies, chasing his, you know, playing with his grandson in his backyard, Michael inherits everything. And then there's a changer. I, I liked it. Yes, it's a lot different. It's, it doesn't have the zeitgeist of Italian crime films. I didn't say it's terrific, amazing. It's award-winning. Well, you know, for its time, there's nothing else like that in American cinema. So I give it. I give them props for bestowing upon these pictures the awards that they did. You know, I'm not knocking them. I think Brando, huge fuck-up of all lifetime, because he's crazy. Crazy. <laughs> Send Princess Sachi Little Feather, you remember this? Yes, I do. Because Brando, back then, was crazy. <laughs> Probably did way too many mushrooms. <laughs> Um, sent at that time what we thought was a representative of American Indian nation mm -hmm. to accept the award on his behalf only to deny the award on his behalf mm -hmm. and say he's not taking it because of this and that so it led to a big hullabaloo now part two to be fair it was, was right around wounded knee so oh yeah to be fair yes but we didn't find out stuff about her too much later on yeah well, that's, but yeah. We're not, that's another thing that's another story <laughs> Now, The Godfather Part 2, because you wanted to cover all three in one shot, thank you so much, <laughs> um, had early Brando played by still young and good-looking Robert De Niro. Um, okay, I couldn't see how Bobby De Niro turned into Brando, but whatever, okay. <laughs> um, a lot of eating. <laughs> I thought it was okay. I have a lot of problems with this film. Why do you think people think it's the best one in the trilogy? Though? I've heard that many times, and I'm like, I no. don't. I personally, I don't. The first one's the best. There's no question. Even I'll and say then that. Part, <laughs> yeah, and, and part three is also problematic. You know, uh, John Casale was still alive at that time, I think. He was also in The Deer Hunter, really good character actor who died way too early of cancer, I believe. Problem is, at some point, Coppola re-edited all these pictures in and out of sequence to make the Godfather saga. So he actually put part parts of part two before part one and parts of part one before part two and made part three the end of them all. It's actually more watchable that way, but it has less of that gut punch that the first picture did. So like it or not, I I, I, I like portions of all of them. Um, it's just, uh, it's a good thing, though. Godfather movie, Mike Al Pacino? You know, yeah, but isn't he really but. subdued in it? Even when he's supposed to be, okay, he's getting more and more involved in the family business. He's losing more of his ties to normalcy, whatever. It's not like he's doing a Pacino performance. He's very subdued. And I'm like, I was, very I was let down. I was let down by it. He's very subdued. Yeah, I, 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 I think, well, even in the, first, in the first picture, he's coming off of Panic in Needle Park. He's a firebrand. And he's coming from this actor studio gigs, this live theater stuff, where he's a firebrand, I'm sure. And yes, he's very subdued. He's actually subdued in, you know, the original 72, the sequel two years later, and the, the threequel yeah. 20 years later. But at least um, in the beginning, at the end, it makes sense. In the beginning, he's not really part of the mob or doesn't want to be. He's coming out of the military. Yeah. And at the end, he's trying to go legit. 
So, all right, you can say, oh, he's doing it deliberately. Why was the middle where he's supposed to be getting worse and building up? He doesn't have to do a Scarface performance, but, you know, building to Al, if you will. He never does it. Well, I, I think he probably looked at this character and decided this is the way he wants to portray him. I think he decided he wanted to approach this this way. Uh, you know, I can't speak for the man. No, I'm not <laughs> saying that. I'm just... But no, it's, 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 a, it's a good point you bring up, though, because out of the majority of the pictures we will discuss, yeah, this is probably the three most subdued opportunities. Exactly. I was very here. let down by these. So what do you want to say about the third one so we can get out of these? Uh, I think I, I mentioned it briefly. It's really interesting. Lee Strasberg, of all people, does pop up in it, and uh, his acting teacher, Sophia Coppola, is in this, who wound up becoming an interesting filmmaker. I won't say anything negative about her, because it's not kind as an actress. <laughs> yeah, well, so it is. She's not really an actress. You, know, you like her, you don't like her. Yeah. In her direction, that's a different story, but it's behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's as terrible, and actually, when... When they re-edited everything to be a one, two, three, to be one big saga, I found parts of part three more palatable, more easier to take. I'll put it, I'll leave it at that. And again, I'll, I will say that the first one was the best of the three, ostensibly, no matter what measure you're looking at it. Okay, I agree. And for me, three was the most watchable visually, just because of the way it was filmed. True. So anyway, 1973, he goes to Serpico. It's one I always liked. Sidney mm. Lumet takes on the true life star of a New York cop of the same name, who brought police corruption to widespread attention and quite possibly bring about the existence of the Internal Affairs Division, ending in his being ditched by his partners during a raid that left him partially deafened and living with chronic pain thereafter. This is real life, by the way. All because he crossed the thin blue line to do the right thing. In this film, every cop is just as bad as the perps on the street, actually worse given the supposed position of quote-unquote authority over the rest of us. They beat on witnesses and mono malfeasance, they extort money, they take kickbacks for looking the other way, they even take credit for Al's collars and threaten him if he says any different. It's the worst of frat boy behavior and fully legitimized within their tight-knit, hush-hush, us-against-the-world milieu. He has a fling with then-cute Cornelius Sharp of busting reincarnation of Peter Proud and Venom fame. He gets a sheepdog off some hippies. He goes to trendy parties. He's a lot closer to the warmer-hearted, more socially concerned Paul Newman in Fort Apache the Bronx than some hard-right crushing went outside the mainstream type like Dirty Harry or the kind of role Bronson degenerated into. Problem is, he wants to do right to be the good guy who helps and protects his community. He takes that bullshit to protect and serve motto literally for once, and he's working inside the system from behind the thin blue line where it's a hell of a lot more fascist, corrupt, and antagonistic, not just the quote-unquote outsiders and everyday people who are inevitably seen as potential if not actual perps, but even the fellow insiders who just won't play ball with their ongoing game of dirty pool, case in point. In many respects, it's like Ocasio in Congress, someone who actually believes in doing right by people for a change, being resisted, if not trolled, by the old boys network on both sides of the ostensible political fence, because she's not in on it, and playing along with their corporate masters to maintain an ever more failing status quo. While I could certainly go on about the grittiness of the film and how accurate it is to the New York of its time, or even the implications of the film, which managed to do more for Serpico's mission than his own efforts did locally, just by spreading the message to a populace who, unlike today, actually gave a shit and stood up against institutionalized wrongdoing. The bottom line is, what makes this film important is what it's saying underneath. That standing up to the system can break you, it can make you paranoid, it can even ruin your life, both personally and professionally. But if we all just shrug our shoulders and play along, things will just continue to get worse. And you can be damn sure those in power or supposedly, quote, authority won't be doing anything but pocketing their bribes for helping things along. Somebody's got to grow a pair, stand up to the mob and say, that's enough, this stops now. Oh, this is... Uh... 
It's a funny thing. Sidney Lumet, the director, and I mentioned Jerry Shasper came from TV when I was uh, we were talking about Panic in Needle Park. Sidney Lumet came from TV, actually a live TV. You know, so we're talking about early hero worship days, guys like David Carradine, Michael Parks. They were doing these live one-hour, 90-minute things for live TV, NBC, ABC, whatever the network was. And that's where he cut his teeth, and he did episodic TV, you know, probably whatever cop show was on. But Sidney Lumet was the, a director that kind of nailed certain things, you know. And he would carry this on pretty much. He would be the premier guy from New York. <laughs> How, do you, how am I going to phrase this? Realistic cop films. And not just New York. Cause remember, we talked about it in our Connery show. Well, not just cop films, though. He did things like Network. Yes. He was just like, he bit into what was going on. You know, for for a guy who, by that time of Network, and probably Serpico, I have no idea how old he might have been. He just bit into what was going on. He knew what was the, what the deal was. He was probably hanging with the right crowd, probably. So more props for that. Serpico is a great movie. Pacino's amazing in it. You you would recognize a lot of the character actors in uh, supporting and smaller roles and, and, and appearing a lot of pictures in this time period. You know, as cops, villains, hangers on, guys who even show up at the station. You just you just know these faces. It was a tough time in, in New York, and it was a tough time for the police. Like, you know, back then, nobody trusted the cops. Well, nobody trusts the cops now again. Hello, thank you. Um, <laughs> this is a phenomenal role to take on for any actor, and I think he did an amazing job. I, I think this was, you know, if they give out awards to actors, this should have been an award-winning role for him. Uh, he did a lot of good work around this time period, uh, this three or four year period. But Serpico's an amazing movie. It ends really fucked up. It's true to life. Yeah, they 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 did things, you know, and 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 he got shot in the face. The real Frank Serpico survived. Well, so does Pacino. The real Frank Serpico survived. Eventually moved to Sweden or Iceland, and kind of like stayed quiet for a long, long time until he resurfaced. In the past couple of our years, there's been one or two documentaries about Frank Serpico, which are on my to-catch-up list because, guys, we have to watch a lot of these movies to catch up on these shows. <laughs> so there's, there are things in, like, the the circle, you know, to see. And, and I do want to see these, these documentaries about Frank Serpico. It's not like I've been ignoring them. I really am interested in watching them. There's one pro and one like middle ground one, but I want to see both. But yeah, the whole Serpico thing, great film. Al's amazing in it. Sidney Lumet, amazing director on this. Led to a really weird movie called Scarecrow. I did not see that one. Yeah, it's Jerry Schatzberg is back. Guy from Panic of Needle Park. So it's like, how do we describe this? Richard Lynch. Yeah, you all remember Richard Lynch, right? <laughs> Well, Richard Lynch told me personally, this is one of the best things he ever did in his life. Yeah. So Jerry Schatzberg, who filmed Panic in Needle Park, decided to do a road movie about vagabonds, ex-convicts, problematic people in life who decide to meet up on the road. They might have been assaulted in prison. It's it, This is a, a movie with lots of vagueness. So I guess there was a lot of studio tampering because maybe as film, some things may have been too harsh for film audiences of 1973. It still plays as a very strange movie. These guys were in prison, Gene Hackman, Al Pacino, and they get out. 
and they go on the road. And Richard Lynch was also in prison with them. And so you got these guys. Who, what a crew, right? Richard Lynch, Gene Hackman, and Al Pacino. <laughs> and then we throw in Eileen Brennan, who was a familiar TV and film presence. Oh, she was ridiculous in the 70s and 80s, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a very strange movie. You know, it's got that... It's like Jerry Schatzberg, who I previously mentioned, did a lot of TV stuff prior to Panic in Needle Park, decided to, like, ejaculate hard-hitting... <laughs> No, really, like hard-hitting. I don't know who he's hanging out with. Maybe he was, like, doing drugs with people on the Lower East Side. Like, he really nailed it, though. He, he nailed what it was like, you know. And you feel like you're watching almost a docudrama. Uh, it's downbeat, though, in, in many ways, as, as the other film is. Uh, these guys go on a road trip after coming out of prison. And they end up crossing America. They have fights. They, they agree. They, they disagree. One of them ends going nuts and ends up in a psychiatric hospital. I, I don't want to go into details because I think it's a film that's been lesser seen than it should be. But Scarecrow is definitely a movie you should check out. This is a great movie. Yeah, no. <laughs> Does it have phenomenal performances? Definitely. Yes, I will say from those three guys. Yeah, you got to remember Richard Lynch, who we know is the villain, you know, the late Richard Lynch, who we know is the villain from Invasion USA. <laughs> I was going to say that. Sword and the Sorcerer and a host of other things, Bad Dreams, and like 46,000 other films and TV shows. But he started out. He was he was another guy who came up the same way, doing the actor studio thing. So these three guys, Gene Hackman too, they were in theater. So, you know, Probably they were just hired to, like, boom, let's create this slice of life thing. But the problem is with Scarecrow is it, it harkens back to that seediness, that true life realism that was evident in Panic of Needle Park. And it's, 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 I think it's a very good film. I just also think it's very hard to watch, just like that movie. So we're going to go to Dog Day? Yes, so 1975, Dog Day Afternoon. It's another Sidney LeMay film, so anyone who's listened to our Sean Connery show knows that generally means it's going to be pretty damn decent, but it's a really, really odd one. The first insane <laughs> thing you need to know here is that this film was based on a true story. Believe it or not, those who've seen the film, this was a true story. So yes, some variation of this actually happened. Check your old newspaper microfiche at the library. Even more bizarrely, this film was marketed as a, quote, boisterous comedy thriller on the DVD release, sardonic absurd maybe, but comedy thriller? So here's the deal. Al, somewhat bizarrely in this respect as well, is playing this teenage idiot of a bank robber. Him and his two Fellini-esque pals decide to rob a bank, as it turns out, to pay for his tranny boyfriend, Chris Sarandon's sex change operation. Seriously, this is the plot. So far, so insane, but it gets worse, turning into a snowballing comedy of errors when every step of the operation is botched. They come to the bank too late in the day, so the bank's already had a visit from the armored car. There isn't all that much money on site. The security guard has an asthma attack. The manager has a diabetic fit. Teller's complain of claustrophobia when he tries to lock everyone in the safe to ensure their getaway. He's got such a soft heart, he lets people use the john. He takes phone calls at the bank. Everyone says their real names out loud. Nobody wears a mask or gloves. Even an attempt to burn the register to prevent tracing of their marked bills brings police attention. The building is surrounded by cops and a huge crowd of gawkers and eventually media, and somehow he becomes a hero, starting a chant of Attica, those of you who don't know famous prison riot. He has pleasant little chats with the head cop. They bring his tranny boyfriend by, but this guy wants no part of the whole thing because I'll beat the crap out of him before this whole thing even went down. And it goes on and on and on, while the fellers, which include your favorite girl Carol Kane, sweat and drink wine and party through the night, and the mob outside cheer them all on. 
Seen through modern eyes, it's a really weird film to have become such a cultural touchpoint of the era. Maybe a hit on the whole outsider anti-hero thing, the anti-establishment business hinted at by the Attica reference, and the fact that not only is the crowd behind Al, but even the ostensible hostages from the bank practically help him out through all this, fixing his mistakes and being almost mothering over his sheer niceness and ineptitude. And again, this is basically all true story. An article in Life magazine about the robbery said that the real life bank manager involved said, I'm supposed to hate you guys, but I've had more laughs tonight than I had in weeks. We a kind of camaraderie and one of the tellers said if they had been my house guests on a saturday night it would have been hilarious you have to remember this was right around watergate wounded knee was going down attica obviously riots and protests clashes with the police and military not to mention distrust of government and corporate establishment were the order of the day so when you see random passerby helping these guys out and patting them on the back as crazy as it might seem to today's far more fascistic meekly order following society back then there was a sense that we the young people were all in this together against quote the man and in 1975, it was possible for a group of outsiders and would-be outlaws like this to buck the system and still be seen as a sort of hero, at the very least the voice of the common folk in action. Misguided? Maybe. But still a lot more right-headed than where we are right now, much less where we seem to be going. Oh, it's just a great fucking movie. It's just, it's, it's an amazing film. Oh, yeah, it's got problems. Nearly every great movie has problems, you know. It, it, the funny thing was, around this time period, I was still living in Coney Island, but there there was this Times Square-esque theater in Park Slope, which was still like before gentrification. It was still like iffy. And it was called the Sanders Theater. And I used to travel from Coney Island by bus. You're wondering where this is all going. I'm going to tell you. So I would go to this movie theater and we played the weirdest Dublin Triple Bills. So across the street from the Sanders Theater was a bank. I forgot the name of the bank. So when Sidney Lumet and crew decided on one hot summer, they were really smart. Let's film it in the fucking hot summer of 1974. They took over this bank, closed the bank by my favorite sleaze theater in Brooklyn and filmed a movie. And so they filmed Dog Day Afternoon in Bark Slope. For those of you who want a little real historical background. So I actually passed by a couple of times and was like, Boom. There were there were a couple of the movies I saw filmed in my neighborhoods over the years, but this this was one of the big ones. I was like, wow, look at that. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so all that sweat was real. <laughs> all that sweat was real. It was a hot fucking summer, man. Just like this summer, a hot fucking summer. So yeah. So how does this reflect reflect real life? Chris Sarandon, everybody's hunky go to after Fright Night played a really femmy, um, tranny girlfriend of Al's in this movie. And I met Chris, and I'm still not sure what team he's on, nor do I care. (laughs) (laughs) I don't care what anybody says. And Al, the guy who Al's portraying was really like a heavier guy, a heavyset guy. Doesn't matter, right? It's movies. But you know what? This is is a good movie, because besides physically... Cinematically, some of the characters not reflecting the true life counterparts and the parents. It it really everything else is there. Everything else is there. Yes, Attica was a big thing. Seventy two, seventy three. If you don't know what that means, guys, Google it. I, I you know, it's like they're still fighting for that. Yeah, it's like when people personally message me about blah 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 blah. I'm like, go to Google, man. Oh, you're not being helpful. Like. You know, I get to the point where I want to say fuck you, but I don't know. <laughs> so, so uh, 
this whole thing happened in 72. Yeah, it took three years because we had to wait for the novelization. We had to wait for, like, the Rolling Stone version of the of the events to unfold, you know, but still, you know, I had said earlier 74, but it was like 1972. But I remember when this happened, John Cazale's in this. He's in the Deer Hunter. He's in the Godfather movies. Unusual character actor, another theatrical guy. He was young, but already premature balding. And he died of cancer early, but Charles Durning's in this. Lance Henriksen's in this. Yeah, you know, we all know Lance. Uh, Carol Kane, you already mentioned. Lots of familiar faces. Dick Anthony Williams, famous countercultural poet, comedian, black activist, has like a throwaway part. Dominic Tianese's in this. Who's that? From The Sopranos. He's Al's dad. So, I mean, it's just like there, there are connections, connections, connections. Sydney Lumet really knocked the ball out of the park. This was like a big, huge hit. I think this really just was touchstone, you know, like, you know, the game Operation Kids, you know, those of age, you had this electronic board. There was like a man's body <laughs> and you had this little thing with a battery. And if you put the parts in the wrong thing, you would get this little jolt and then they would go and I was like, oh, you, you didn't do the heart operation right. All kinds of weird <laughs> stuff like that. Well, this is the kind of movie where you're not going to get any zats and zits because it's going to work right. What a weird analogy for me, but it's true. It touched something in that generation for sure. It touched something, and everything worked right. Yes, the guy doing the robbery was married. He didn't tell his wife he had a gay lover. Yes, he wanted to get his gay lover out of wherever he was. Yes, he was up against the fence. Yes, he treated the people in the bank well. Yes, he asked for a lot of money. <laughs> yes, he was against the man. Yes, he was against the system. Yes, all this stuff was going on that he he used as a touchstone at the time, like the treatment of blacks in prison in Attica, for example. Great movie, strange movie, and it, his career after this had like, Oddball ups and downs. Yeah, to say the least. So after that, we already touched on The Godfather Part 2, so I guess we can go right to Injustice for All, just 1979. But you're going to skip Bobby Deerfield. <laughs> Did you see that? No, I didn't. So Al Pacino was, was in love, crazy in love with Marthy Keller, this this French actress who was just so beautiful. And she was in Marathon Man with uh, Roy Scheider, Dustin Hoffman. She was just Astonishing, but Al and Marthy were the thing for a long time. And Sidney Pollack put to, put together this picture, and they they built this as Bobby Deerfield, a love story. So Al and his girlfriend at the time are in this movie. He's so he, Al plays a race car driver. Okay, that's different. And Marthy plays a woman who's quirky, impulsive. She's French and she's dying, which unbeknownst to him, she was. Here's the fucked up part of the, of the whole life thing. Martha Keller was dying of cancer when they were together, and she never told him. The movie didn't really do well because, you know, we were seeing Al Pacino, powerhouse performer, powerhouse performances, suddenly doing a very skilled down, very unusual kind of picture for him. And it's a love story. He was really in love with this woman. And I guess, you know, maybe he even pushed it, too. It's like, oh. We've got to make this movie, you know, that kind of thing. 
And, you know, good director, but it was just it was dead on arrival, as as they used to say in, in the news. And so it did nothing for either one of them. And then she passed on and Al was kind of crushed. So now and Justice for All, you could you could redo your 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 tag again. If you would like. <laughs> so this is 79 and Justice for All. You're out of order. The whole trial's out of order. You piece of shit. You're supposed to stand for something. You're supposed to protect people. Before lawyer dramas became a thing in the 80s, with everything from crap like Legal Eagles and Kramer vs. Kramer to My Cousin Vinny and L.A. Law, we had this edgy little courtroom character study from, of all people, the director of Jesus Christ Superstar and Rollerball, and filled with crusty old types like Jack Warden, John Forsyth, and the creator of The Method, Lee Strasberg himself, plus a few oddballs like Jeffrey Tambor, who gives a hell of a performance in this one himself. It's practically the flip side of Dog Day Afternoon, with Pacino still as the system-fighting, anti-establishment anti-hero, except now he's working inside the system as a defense attorney. Somewhat like Jack Nicholson's drunken civil rights lawyer and Easy Rider, we encounter him in the drunk tank, but for decking the hardline right-wing judge, Forsyth, who's keeping an innocent man locked away without parole. The rest of the film is him challenging such judges and defending outsiders like a drag queen who's being railroaded on a minor offense until he winds up being more or less blackmailed and defending the very asshole judge he decked in the first place for beating and raping a young girl. Meantime, the cases he'd already been fighting, which the right-wing judge has been ignoring and allowing to rot in jail, both snap under the pressure, the drag queen hanging himself, the other one takes a hostage and tries to break out, only to be gunned down, and on the side, Tambor's successful defense of a killer lets this guy out in the street where he promptly kills again, which causes Tambor to shave his head and flip out because he can't handle the fact that he let this guy free. So after all of this... The only case that Al still has a shot at being successful at is defending the very guilty adversarial Judge Forsyth, who pulls a Brett Kavanaugh and says he'd be happy to do it to the girl all over again. When push comes to shove, despite the very real risk of being disbarred for various reasons, Al does the right thing and busts Forsyth. Yay? Well, it's a damn short thing they can't market this one as some sort of comedy. Dark, sordid, realistic. This one's all about how you can't fight City Hall, at least not at great cost to yourself. The only positive about it is it's true to life. Sometimes it's absolutely worth it. And if you don't think Judge John Forsyth is a direct analog to Trump and his cronies, you haven't been paying attention. Time to call this court to order. Here, here. I, I can't add anything to that. No, you spoke very well of this movie. I agree with you 100%. Great movie. It's it's probably not a revisited film in Al Pacino's canon, and it should be, folks. You should really take another look at this. Especially yeah, now. we know that. Yeah, there there are a lot of sound bites from this film. Um, yeah, Al's outbursts, and there are reasons for them. Actually, <laughs> I think from this here, from this point here on, really good mimics and and comedians who do mimic mimicry really well, they start picking on Al. And say, oh, I could channel him, and I'll do it. You're out of order. You know, just do this whole thing, <laughs> the Shoutastic kind of owl. Shoutastic owl. Yeah, there you go. This is a new title. Um, it's a really good movie. You really, I can't add anything else to what you already said. It's a really good film that good performances all around. And, yes, you, <laughs> you know, Richard was, you know, he's had a lot of hits, and he's had a lot of misses, but. Hey, sometimes it's a director. You know, it's it's, it, it, it's all what's in the pot. If you stir it often enough, the soup will taste really yummy. But if you go away, sit down, it's going to coalesce. It's going to be like gelatin, and it's not going to taste yummy as you want it. So you have to stir that soup. This, this is a movie that was well stirred. 
So uh, next up, <laughs> it didn't coagulate. That's right. It was warm to perfection. It served it al dente. <laughs> yes, there you go. So 1980, cruising. You know, when it comes to movies I love, right around 1980 was something of a banner period. Between 79 and 81, just about every American film worth a damn in my book came out. Horror, crime, sci-fi, fantasy, thrillers, you name it. This trickles out a bit to 83 or so when you're still getting strong efforts from folks like Brian De Palma and Ken Russell. But right around the turn of the decade, it seemed like everybody was tapping into something dark, sleazy, transgressive, often erotic as well. It was a very urban thing, too. Almost like everything was set in the seediest areas of New York and its boroughs or cities standing in for the same, like Chicago or L.A. Cat People, Hardcore, Looker, Wolfen, The Warriors, Maniac, Exterminator, Vigilante, hell, Fulci's New York Ripper even, and that's only the tip of the iceberg. But a few scenes and undertones here and there aside, the only film that took the dive straight into the darker depths of gay culture, and specifically the gay bar scene, was Cruising. Directed by, of all people, the guy who gave us The French Connection and The Exorcist, and apparently vetted to Steven Spielberg at one point. Can you picture this on his resume? This film is notable as much for its controversy at the time as the end product. Apparently, gay activists at the time protested and tried to disrupt the film while it was being made because it showed a little too much reality for the mainstream. You know, don't want to look bad for mom and dad back in the Midwest, right? Case in point, there was 20 minutes of footage that had to be cut to take the film down from an initial X rating, which the studio subsequently destroyed. All of it was footage shot in the various gay bars Pacino frequents during the movie, some of which supposedly got too realistic and graphic. I've been in some of those, I'll tell you that, young man. (laughs) They even had to put some lame disclaimer (laughs) on the film. (laughs) No comment. They even had to put some lame disclaimer on the film saying, essentially, not all gays are serial killers. Duh, really? No, couldn't be. Also of note, Darby Crash and the Germs, a member of which later went out to join Nirvana, recorded some of their best songs for this soundtrack, but only the strongest, namely Lion Share, was used. Most Germs fans already had these songs in that posthumous MIA compilation. It's the last six tracks starting from My Tunnel, plus you get their best track, No God, so don't bother looking any further than that album. But even so, with the half-assed punk that they used in the movie, it's baffling those weren't all included in the film itself. But the film itself is pretty killer. A guy who has one of those radio voiceover speaking tones, much akin to one of my all-time favorite films, The Image, Carl Parker, is a leather boy who cruises for partners and kills them after they screw up. When they start fishing body parts out of the East River, the cops pick Pacino, who bears a certain physical resemblance to a few of the victims, to go undercover as a gay clubber, where he learns about which pocket to put which color handkerchief, the joys of wandering around Central Park after dark in full leather with handcuffs dangling, and then he's starting to lose his personal and sexual identity, first seen in sex with his wife, and later in the disturbing closing scene where he's staring himself in the mirror while his wife discovers all his leather gear. Worse, this comes after he catches the ostensible killer, who claims innocence of the murders. Hmm. There's a parallel story involving noted mama's boy Joe Spinell as a closeted gay cop who takes advantage of drag queens between visits to the local leather bar, and in the end it's one big seedy ball of gender confusion. Much like Hardcore, Dress to Kill, Crimes of Passion, New York Ripper, and to a lesser extent Body Double, this is one of the most oversexed blends of eroticism and murder ever presented to more or less mainstream filmgoers, gay-themed or not. And therefore, it's always been one of my favorites, and one of a trio, arguably quartet of films, that suggested Pacino as the subject for a podcast here. I love this film, period. Thank you. Thank you. Very good. Very good. All right. There sometimes I have to applaud you. You do such a great job, I don't know what to say. <laughs> Serious. No, that's good. That's good. Uh, I have to say that I interviewed Karen Allen twice in the past three years, and I have forgotten to ask her about this movie really? she's done well you know my room is you know she's done like indiana jones oh, yeah. star man you know like 
and I only get 20 minutes with the woman and usually with other actors. And, you know, I just can't hit every key point. And then we're doing this show. I'm like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't ask about cruising because I'm really curious. But she also seems a very kind of uh, uh, porcelain type uh-huh. of woman. If you know what I'm saying. She looked now, good in uh, his leather jacket and hat. <laughs> she she she's still amazing looking. She's the nicest, one of the nicest people I ever met, and just doable beyond belief at 67 years old, whatever the fuck. But but she looks very fragile. So I'm I'm not quite sure if cruising is something I want to touch upon because <laughs> even even if I remembered, I'm gonna get to this. I'm gonna swing around to you now. This is a great movie. And for all the reasons, all the touchstones you hit upon, at that time period, I mean, who knew? William Freakin, you know, he, or Freakin, however you pronounce his building name, uh, you know, would touch upon something. This was the subject of, like, articles based on real life. There was, you know, murders of men, West Village bars, the ramrod, the cockpit, everybody knows those. I, I said earlier I was in some of these because, yes, I know a lot of people and they're gay, so what? They would say, Lou, you want to come to this bar? I'm like, yeah, I'll go to the bar. I would drink with you. And that would be it. Lou would leave the bar and I would leave the guy there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember when Asia Argento did Scarlet Diva. Oh, I love the movie, yeah. Okay, you know this movie? Sure do. And the guy who was promoting the release of the film invited me and others to the premiere in New York. So I went. I, I sat a couple rows between – no, a couple seats. Sorry, she was in the same row. Asia and, I don't know, Method Man? I think it was Method Man. And, and so afterwards, he goes, you're going to come to the party? It's at the cock. And I said, where's that? Oh, it's on like Avenue A or something. So what's it called? It's the cock. <laughs> We're all going there. Yeah, we're going to meet up. So I go into this place. No, it's me, right? And there's drawings of cocks on the wall. I'm like, (laughs) okay, so I know what kind of bar this is. So, you know, I had a good time, but no, not that kind of good time. (laughs) But I knew knew immediately what kind of place (laughs) these guys rented out for the night. So I've been in places like this. So I will say not to be pedantic because I hate that kind of stuff, but I just realized it was not Method Man. It was Spoonie G because uh, I had a thing for Asher Argento. I was really hot for her for a lot was of years. Was it Spoonie G? Okay, yeah, it could, yeah, you could that. be right. Yeah, whoever it was. It was the guy at the time. So I've been in places like this. I also – so here's another thing. When, when, when I – when I was in high school, I had this, I had this, uh, these two friends, you know, and they were like really nice guys. This one guy had this really hot Italian girlfriend. We were all amateur photographers, and then we graduated. We kept in touch. And this guy goes, "Oh, let's bring our cameras to the village." And we, you know, we bring our cameras to the village. You know, it's just like maybe late '70s now. And so we're like taking pictures. He goes, "Oh, I know this is great places to like warehouses, and they're abandoned." You know, I was like, "Hey." Wait a minute. Why would we want to do that? It's really dark in here. So if you hear any sounds, I said, Ricky, I'll see you later. <laughs> we all know what was going on in there. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and you know what? I think these guys were like, it's okay. <laughs> you had to be brave to be gay and out in those days. That's all I can say from everything I've yeah, heard yeah, and seen. No, it's like, 
No, I would hang out with anybody, but it was like I always knew, like that's not my that's not my thing, man. So I'll see you guys <laughs> later, right? If I don't see you tomorrow, I'll say okay, you sh. But, <laughs> but uh, this the thing that was interesting about this movie. I always thought it really hit upon really key things, you know, like that's the scene with the handkerchiefs, you know. Yeah, was it yellow? Yeah, yellow means you take it. Blue means you don't. Yeah, don't whatever. wear that yellow. fucking yellow handkerchief out if you aren't going to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Joe Spinell, which is like very interesting. Yeah, I'm only going to go there. You Joe Spinell fans. Yeah. James Remar is in this. He was um, a mama's boy. Everybody knows that. Powers Booth. It's the hanky salesman. Do you remember yes. that? Yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah, so it's a lot of interesting people in this. Seriously, though, I have to say, it, it's a great movie, but I don't know why I believe this, and I could be, I could be wrong. I think this is a movie that may have fucked up Al Pacino it for did. a long time. It did. I, I, I'm not saying, how do we say this now? I'm not saying it messed with his own sexual identity or anything like that, but I think the intense... Because, you know, he's a method actor. Mm -hmm. So the intense stuff he had to do for this, which probably meant going to some of these clubs, experiencing what it was to go to some of these clubs. You know what I'm trying to say? Yep. And or probably hanging out with people who were gay that were going to some of these clubs and like interfacing. I'm trying to do this in such a nice way. (laughs) We all know what you're trying to say. (laughs) Yeah. And, and then doing this movie, and then it not being received well. Oh, no, it was really a kind of a cause celebrity at the time. So even though yeah. I think it did well after the fact, when almost like Mommy Dearest, when gays accepted it as part of their uh, right. culture, I guess, at the time it was like, oh, my God, it was like a hot potato. And I think it kind of killed him for a couple of years there. It kind of killed him for a couple of years. I mean, you know, he did work. He did unusual work. But I think it also kind of fucked them up because, I, I, you know, I don't want to say Al got confused. <laughs> I, I, he never did get but, married. <laughs> no, we don't want to go there because that's from talking about from the, at 79 years old. Um, what? What the fuck are you saying about me, huh? <laughs> I'm hey, not that you, way. You. <laughs> I, I listen to your podcast. What the fuck is wrong with you? Here's Joe Pesky. He's got a bat. <laughs> Like, I'm sorry, man. We love what? you, man. What? <laughs> we think you're great. Uh, wait, wait for the Joe Pesky show, guys. Oh, boy. So, 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 <laughs> so, no, this is, I, I, again, all kidding aside, you really nailed it. Uh, it's a great movie, and it's, it's a phenomenal picture, and it's just a time capsule. And, you know, for some odd reason, William, William, the director, Friedkin, has been fucking with this picture for a long time and re-edits. He made a lot of it blue. He changed color toning. He did some re-edits. But then he, he turned around and said he didn't like that version. So he did it again. Now, I believe it just came out summer 2019 through Arrow yeah. video. Overpriced Blu-ray, which sucks. Cause... An overpriced Blu-ray, which apparently has... Next, all that stuff, and it's a new edit where the original DP worked on it. So, you know, I have yet to see that, but I'm, I'm sure it looks phenomenal. Yeah, I would love to grab that, but it's like, geez, Arrow, come on. 
<laughs> Waiting for a sale. I know. I know. So anyway, like we said, he kind of messed up with his career for a couple of years there. I guess just all the controversy and, you know, who knows if anything was going on with him personally as a method actor. <clears throat> but anyway, uh, 1982 is his next film of note where he does author, author. Now, here's a bizarre one for you. Remember Kenny Rogers in Six Pack? That piece of shit was the last movie shown at the last drive-in in our area, and either played forever, or they never took the sign down. I swear it was their showing us playing for a year or two. Anyway, this is more of a New York Jewish take on that film, where instead of bank robbers with a heart of gold and NASCAR serving as backdrop to it, ultimately it's just another lame-ass Hallmark family values propaganda piece about how wonderful having about a dozen children is. Did I mention this was directed by the guy behind Silver Streak, Nightwing, and the in-laws? So yeah, here Mumbly, Gruff, and disheveled Al Pacino is a rather unlikely choice to star as a Neil Simon-style playwright whose latest effort is in trouble, so he bullshits his investors, which include the irascible Alan King and one of my favorite 80s bit players, Richard Belzer, that he's lined up named Broadway actress Diane Cannon for it. So now he has to convince her to join the cast while dealing with his flaky wife, real-life nutcase Tuesday Weld, who's actually one of his people he's involved with, running out on him in their enormous Timothy Van Patten-level brood, most of which were hers from prior men. And yeah, you may be thinking the Brady Bunch here, but this is more like if Florence Henderson with a local whore. And if you don't like that assessment, realize that she runs out on all of her kids and the one she had with him just to chase the cock and voluntarily dumps custody of all these kids on Al, and in a few cases, her prior baby daddies. Of course, Al's such a fun dad they don't want to stay with him anyway. So this is a bit where Al and all the kids have a rooftop standoff with Dyfus and unbelievably win. The kids get to stay with Fun Dad. Fun Dad gets to raise a half dozen kids that aren't even his own but his lonesome. And along the way, he balls and dumps by Ann Cannon, puts on another successful play, and realizes that Tuesday is such a selfish bitch with zero concern for the welfare of even her own family that she isn't worth the time of day. Hello, Mom. <laughs> There's a core message here that I agree with wholeheartedly, which is that you choose your family and build it yourself. Screw the assholes that you're born into. But as you can hear, it's kind of a mess. Can you believe someone tried to market this as a comedy? Wait until you hear the embarrassingly cloying Dawn of the 80s theme song Coming on to you is like coming on to milk and cookies. Christopher Cross and the theme from Cheers had nothing on this. <laughs> it's a weak movie. It's a weak movie. And uh, it was two years after cruising. I think I wanted to bounce back with Happy Happy, Joy Joy, and um, Family Friendly. Family Friendly, and yeah, maybe touch upon a, l- a little of that and Justice for All kind of thing. But it just doesn't work. Didn't, it doesn't work. And, and neither did. And neither did the revolution, which is a couple of years later. But next, he does a really balls out crazy fucking thing. Yeah, Scarface, 1983. Brian De Palma, who's working around this period, I tend to love. I mean, blowout, dress to kill, body double. He starts making his move away from Hitchcock worshiping big budget erotic films, a la Ken Russell, and into the far more mainstream yet sordid world of mob films. Oliver Stone worked on the script in this one, twisting the old Paul Mooney film with its pre-code intimations of incest into a far less transgressive one, making the title character into a Cuban refugee-cum-cokehead Miami drug lord. Michelle Pfeiffer's pretty damn hot in this, more or less her big breakthrough role, but Al is way over the top, almost getting into Nicolas Cage territory with his pouting lip, poorly accented, you want to fuck with me, essay? Shtick. In <laughs> <laughs> some moments are pretty... <laughs> It's ridiculous. Other than some moments. Of... 
That sounds like it, man. Oh, uh, it's some moments of pretty heavy violence for an American film of the period. I can't say I'm a fan, really. There's a nod to the original's incest theme in the dialogue, but it's never the gut punch of the original. And Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio is hardly a name to conjure by. This one's fame mainly rests on bringing Pfeiffer to everyone's attention. It's rather extreme rating. I think it came out unrated with an X for all the violence and drugs at the time. And a whole lot of sampling of Al's coked-up dialogue by rappers. Do you want to see my little friend? Oh, boy. <laughs> but it is an intense performance if you can put up with all the, uh, what do you want to call it, cultural misappropriation. <laughs> it's, it's an amazing performance. It, it's it's. You think he's coked up himself? Whoever the fuck is channeling here? He's just channeling something. I mean, I, I don't think Al Pacino's the kind of guy that would mimic somebody. He's channeling something. I don't know what uh, or who or whom. But, yeah, it sounds like... I mean, in retrospect, it, so, it sounds like you know, he's he's making fun of, but he's not. He, he's he's actually channeling something that I don't know what. And he was of the age to pull it off because you know he had to play a little younger than older, so he could still do it. Uh, the thing that's really interesting, like there's some people in this movie that Stephen Bauer, he was like you know, the thing at the time. Yeah, whatever happened to that guy? And then Michelle Pfeiffer, you know, like all these people are playing Latinos. And, you know, whatever happened to Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio? Because I thought she was so hot in the abyss. And then she disappeared, if she's still alive. F. F. Murray Abraham is some guy named Omar Suarez. You know, that guy famous, you know. You know. <laughs> Amadeus next year. Amadeus. Greg Henry's in this. Remember Greg Henry? You know, the De Palma guy? So... Seriously, though, this movie is so violent. It's so violent. I mean, is this Lou Paulson? Yes, it is. This is super violent. And it's super splatterific. And it caused problems. I mean, it's just, it's just like, I don't know what they were inhaling in this movie. <laughs> oh, yes, we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there was supposed to be some kind of special thing they made to look like cocaine. But I don't believe it. I think they were all stuck. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And like they were they were doing mounds and mounds of coke, y'all. It's like they're just just midway midway through this bloated length of almost three hours, Al starts just throwing his face into mounds of blow. And you know, if I did that much blow I'd be dead. <laughs> but but thank God I didn't because I have poor friends. But <laughs> it's Keith Richards but, little woman, it's bad. <laughs> I don't think Keith had that much blood. So, I mean, no, they're just, there were scenes. Remember, his face is all yes, white. It was like Chevy Chase on the Saturday Night Live there. I like yeah. it. <laughs> and he just comes out with these huge firepower weapons. I mean, it's just crazy shit. And bodies get blown apart. I, you know, <laughs> seriously, I think this is one of those movies that's a bright product of, like, studios having like low parties, cocaine parties and the filmmakers having cocaine parties <laughs> and the actors coming in and give me some more blow is that great yeah <laughs> I believe it and and that being said Al Pacino comes <laughs> comes through on this thing as a crazy fucking intense motherfucking bastard <laughs> will this be you know, it's still, I think the jury's still out on this picture, what, 30 years later? I think the jury's still out on this movie, like, 
Is it a good movie? Is it a bad movie? Is it a fucking wacko picture? A lot. At the time, it was conceived as notorious. Everybody was like, wow, what the hell's with this film? And then it gained fame later because of rappers and such. But, you know, is it a good film? It's still notorious, I would have to say. You know, I I, I don't know. I, I It's a tough picture. It's a tough picture, especially, especially as De Palma has, uh, of recent years, kind of negated anything he's done that is worth anything. Then we have Revolution. Hmm. Hugh Hudson, who did Chariots of Fire. You remember that song? Makes a American Revolutionary War film with Al Pacino. <laughs> who was he? He plays Fur Trapper. Dom, <laughs> Tom Dove. Well, Donald Sutherland's in this thing. Natasha Kinski. What? More drugs. Well. Yeah. Stephen Burkhoff. Wow, this is a fun movie. <laughs> um, and, and some guy who disappeared off the face of the earth playing uh, Al's son. Basically, <laughs> This this movie was one of the first pictures nominated for Golden Raspberry. Remember that? <laughs> yes, I do. Like worst picture of the year. So as they put this movie together, revolutionary war film, and everybody has all good intentions, right? So, but they're getting kind of tight in the production, so they rush the production to get it ready for a Christmas release. But the studio gets cold feet when they saw the rough cut, so they had Al come back in and narration. To explain things. They also cut the picture by 10 to 15 minutes. Then it gets released. Bombs. They release it in England. Bombs. They release it, re-release it 10 years later. Bombs. <laughs> because Al... And also, it's like weird business all around. Like, the music's by John Corigliano, who's, who's, who's an acolyte of John Cage. So he's an experimental musician. Y'all... Corigliano is a guy who does stuff like Brian Eno. So why would you hire a guy to score this epic film? <laughs> it was like a huge mistake all around. And it was just like, okay, it didn't do anybody any good. So Al Pacino disappears off the face of the earth to return in a thriller. Yes. So as you can see, the 80s are really rough for Al. He does two notorious films, Cruising and Scarface, two that really tanked, Author, Author, and Revolution. And then that's it. That's all he did for the freaking decade until the very cusp of the 90s, when 1989, he does Sea of Love. Roses are red, violets are blue. I got one yay long, and it's all for you. If you're a printer, I got a dick. Didn't doubt it for a minute, baby. Amazing fucking film. I fell in love with it the first time I saw it in HBO back in the day. I had the VHS sitting in a closet somewhere, and now I have it on DVD as well. This may be the last credible neo-noir ever lensed. One of the three or four films that made me love Pacino, and alongside to a far lesser extent, 1986 is The Big Easy, one of the two films that got me seriously jonesing after Ellen Barkin for a bit. Want to know something about me? Big secret? Who is this guy? In this film... She's my kind of girl. So everything about this movie works. There's really nothing extraneous in the dialogue. No random bits of business. It all plays back into the theme and the main storyline, even the jokes. I don't know who this Richard Price guy is, but he must be one hell of a screenwriter. That's all I can say. So hats off to you, Richard Price, if you're listening. We don't live for our work, do we? Al is a 20-year veteran of the New York City Police Force. He's got people talking to him about retiring, but he's got nothing in his life. His ex-wife walked out on him, and worse, married some tight-ass ball guy he works with. So there's all this tension going on. He continually snipes at the guy, and he goes from normal conversations where it builds up to the point where he's starting to throw fists. He's become a heavy drinker, alone in his apartment in the dark every night. He even makes drunk calls to the guy and his ex. He's so messed up and alone. 
Lucky he's got John Goodman as a partner, who is, by the way, also in the Big Easy, bringing some levity and a revoir performance to the theme song to lighten things up. So while this is all going on, they wind up on a case where someone's gunning down folks who answer personal ads in the paper, which was how people used to do Tinder or online dating in those days, in case you're too young to understand. And after a few duds, along comes Barkin, looking stunning in a red leather cutoff jacket and form-hugging jeans, and then the plot kicks in. What this film is really all about is finding and building a relationship. There's some amazingly steamy sex being shown and alluded to here. My favorite is the time they're up against the wall, practically devouring each other, and she pushes off him and walks away because it's getting too hot. Then she kind of stalks right back in and goes for it again. There's some implied flipping of the tables and switch business. I mean, yeah, it doesn't take much to read between the lines here, and what's on screen is already steamy enough. But it's not just about this hot sex. The whole thing feels very real. I mean, there's a level of protecting yourself, guards you have to put up with people, and her big thing's about lies, secrets, and being lied to. So things get stripped away bit by bit. She keeps picking up cues that something's off, but he thinks on his feet, so he's got good excuses. But it's not long before he's thrown in and he's involved with her, which would blow the case if she is the killer. And then before long, she knows he's not a printer, but a cop, while she has more evidence building against her and even freaks out on her a few times, it still keeps going deeper and getting more real until we find out the truth at the end. It's dark. It's rain-swept. It's filled with shadows and drawn blinds and flashing neon signs across the cityscape. you got a flawed, broken protagonist heading for an even bigger fall and a femme fatale who brings some tremendous sexual heat, but the threat of his own death in the bargain as well. It's hard to see how much more noir it could get, especially given that this isn't the 70s heyday of the neo-noir. It's 89! Hell, there's even a happy ending. What's not to love here? I've forgotten about this film. I actually never upgraded to DVD until I didn't have it for this show, but it's one I'll certainly be revisiting. It may not hold the extra charge of mystery that it did back when, but overall, and certainly of its time period, it still holds up really well, surprisingly so, and well beyond the usual, eh, yeah, I guess I could see why that was into this starlet or other. I was still totally into Ellen Barkin in this movie. It is great. I love this film. Do you like Ellen Barkin? Oh, oh, I was so hot for her then. That period, holy shit, in this movie especially, this was like the bung. Okay, you got me. <laughs> that was a good, it's a great Al Pacino film. Directed by Harold Becker, who actually, this is the, one of the last films he ever did. He came out of nowhere with The Onion Field. Do you remember that? Yes, I 1979. Uh, Black Marble, not as good. And then started, like, succumbing to weirdness with Taps, Fishing Quest. But this was, like, the last good picture he made. Great cast. Again, you really nailed it. Uh, Michael Rooker. You didn't mention him. Or if you did, I missed it. He's in this as a really curious character. That's why I didn't mention him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, because I like young Michael Rooker when he wasn't he wasn't taken with being Michael Rooker. His importance like, in the film is why I didn't mention him. Yeah, yeah, he's he's important in the film. And the thing is, Michael Rooker in the last five years has been like, I'm Michael Rooker, you know it. You know, it's yeah, like, <laughs> it's like, and he's playing Michael Rooker. It's a great film. It's It's odd. It's, um, well, is it a, yeah, it's a really good movie, and I highly recommend it. Sort of like, sort of like, who is that guy that was fired for making advances on women on TV shows, the old man? Yeah, and we used to like him, too. TV commentator. Now he sells vitamins. You're not talking oh. about the guy that was on uh, Today Show, that guy, Matt Lauer. No, the other guy, just like Matt Lauer, but he's older. So now he's always on TV going, I'm so-and-so. I'm selling a Spider-Man. It's done a lot for my marriage as he's getting divorced. So <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> so next up, 
Wow. Uh, talk about a precipitous fall all of a sudden. 1990, Dick Tracy. Talk about terrible films that somehow got nominated for awards. Incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed-up zombies was so much more deserving. I remembered finding the cassette of Madonna trying to do torch songs for like a buck right around the time of the film or not long after. To be fair, she showed more range of polish than she pulled off on her earlier better album. It's like the more she improved as a vocalist, so far as it ever went with her, the worse her music got. True Blue was an early nod year. Thank God for erotica, that's all I can say. So anyway, this piece of shit was Warren Beatty. Remember him? The vapid sex symbol of the 70s, most famed for his vapid gigolo of a strangely very straight hairstylist and shampoo. Yeah, well, this clown decided he could be a director. He could barely act, but damn it, he can magically direct. You know how famous couples have to celebrate their brief time in the sack by making a film together? You know, Benefer Mark I had Jiggly, Benefer Mark II had Daredevil, Pitt and Jolie had Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and Baby and Madonna had Dick Tracy. I guess this was before they showed him sitting around looking disgruntled and lost, and the lady's self-centered show captured so well in Truth or Dare. So here she's got a bad Lee Christine in 2019 haircut, and sings cheesy Danny Elfman tunes meant to evoke a 40s swing torch aesthetic. But if you actually listen to that stuff with any regularity, like the wife and I, I really miss Jukebox Radio, remember them? You can hear just how fake and off this stuff is. But again, it was credible enough attempt, so give them credit for that much. The color schemes are ridiculous, as are the sets. Everyone's running around in day-glow primary color suits and such. The sets are practically drawn in comic book style, all of which was also done on TV with the John Wesley Ship Flash series around the same time. But that was actually pretty decent, unlike this. Oh, and the makeup on the villains is atrocious. Now, you might expect a bit of weirdness with Chester Ghoul baddies like Flattop and Gruesome, but everyone looks utterly absurd like a high school theatrical production or worse. Worst of all, being Al Pacino as Big Boy, an apparent theater impresario, and Hunchback who's given a ridiculous witch nose and jutting chin, among other overly pronounced ethnic knocks. Yes, they go there. But he's also a gangster taking over the city, while Madonna plays the questioner, Mr. A, between lame attempts to seduce Beatty away from his boring and rather old-looking girlfriend. And Al takes the absurdity of this and runs with it, bellowing his lines, acting like the troll under the bridge Italian-style throughout. Don't let anyone fool you. <laughs> this movie blows. The 90s were full of terrible films, the Phantom, the Rocketeer, the Shadow, the Avengers. They just didn't know how to handle the old pulp comic and television series they were trying to revive. So everything got camped up and packed with big-name but third-rate actors with bad scores and questionable directors. Little, if anything, actually worked. Case very much in point here. What a piece of shit. Well, I, I won't agree with you on all those pictures from the 90s that you said were terrible, but it's sort of like who thought this was a good idea i mean <laughs> dick tracy was a comic strip and it was never even when it was a serial it wasn't even one held in high regard and so it's been like mia for like decades and so warren Beatty liked it he's already a mature man when this was made but he still had the clout you know this you know the swinging ball clout so he, he puts the most bizarre cast together for this thing and I say cast because not only do we have Al Pacino, we have like, here's the mob. You ready? Dustin Hoffman, William Forsythe, Edda Ross, Mandy Patankin, R.G. Armstrong, Henry Silva, Paul Servino, Jimmy Kahn. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And everybody was in prosthetic makeup. And, and you know, but you could recognize them, except it was like, I don't know who they I, 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 it's just terrible stuff. And, and, and yes, Al was bellowing his lines because maybe he thought he was playing a cartoon version of his character, which is a cartoon character. But it was a huge mess. 
But somehow, in the last five or six years, which is almost 20 or 30 since this was made, I've been seeing more kinder appreciations of this movie. So I don't know. Maybe something we don't know. But it didn't do too well. And... But I, you know, I can't fault Madonna, you know, and and it's a very strange thing. Some things get made, and, and you just can't figure it out. <laughs> yes. So uh, next up, <laughs> I believe that he goes to is Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Honestly, I couldn't get myself to watch more than a few minutes of this typically foul-mouthed and empty David Mamet play adaptation back in the day, and I saw no reason to attempt same now. I hate David Mamet. Or should I say, I fucking hate that cocksucking piece of shit, that goddamn ball-licking asswipe of a bastard posing as a motherfucking playwright. Next. Oh, it's, no, it's it's good. It's really good. It's really good. Not directed <laughs> by David Mamet, Mamet, as he likes to refer to himself. <laughs> um, You got Al Pacino and Jack Lemmon, who was nominated for Best Supporting Actor of all people. So was Al. Alec Baldwin, Ed Harris, Alan Arkin, Kevin Spacey. Yeah, that Kevin Spacey. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's about real estate guys trying to do the deal. And, you know, we don't trust those motherfuckers anyway. Really good. If you like to watch a movie about ten guys sitting in a room coming into work every day, day by day, like we both experienced, but so bitter and so on the edge and so on the edge of – committing a terrible crime <laughs> um, that they're about to snap. You know, the worst of misogyny, homophobia, racism comes out in meme stuff. It's like Gamergate. I mean, it's that crowd. Yeah, yeah. It's But it's really good. I thought all these guys really, really came up there and knocked the ball out of the park. I have to say, I, I enjoyed it for what it was. Not my kind of movie. But, no, I, I think it's good. I think it's good. Not a great film, but I think it's good. So same year, Santa of a Woman. It's a strange film that you wouldn't think would work, and yet somehow it actually does. Al's a crusty old ex-military bastard who's blind and living with his kids. When they head off on vacation, they hire a mousy rich high schooler to babysit him. But it gets more complicated pretty quickly. You know, Al's really more of a wild and impulsive type, to the point where he's a bit crazy. He loves wine, women, and song, and doesn't take shit from little piss ants like his sniping relations. There's actually a nice sequence where he snaps into action and more or less breaks the loudest mouth's jaw, something I wanted to do at the extended family get-togethers throughout my youth. And there's a true-to-life dark side to all this edge play. He's playing one last blowout weekend before killing himself. The kid's also not what you think right away. Even though he's going to this snooty, suit-and-tie rich kid's school, he's actually a Midwest bumpkin there on a scholarship. Along the way, Al teaches the kid how to live and be more of a man, and he helps him out with a major situation at school to boot. Bottom line here is you've got a top-tier actor and a surprisingly well-crafted script that actually focuses on characterization to the point where the two leads, and Al in particular, come out really multifaceted and well-rounded. You know, Al may be hard-living, or was and tries to be again, but he's also dark, depressed, suicidal even. He may come off pretty damn cool overall, particularly when it comes to seducing the ladies or taking down snarky, yuppie pricks like a real man, but he also freely admits he's an asshole and he knows it. He's crass, he's mouthy, he's a bit misogynistic, and in a lot of ways I know at least one person here who can find more than a little to identify with in him. It's not one of the world's greatest films, despite all the awards and acclaim thrown at it, nor is it, quote, my kind of movie by a long shot. But I saw it back when it came out and didn't slam it, and going back to this show nearly 30 years later for it, it more or less still holds up. Certainly Al's performance does. It's a lot better than you would expect it to be. Certainly than I would expect it to be. I agree. It's a lot better than you would expect it to be. Chris O'Donnell, who they were really pushing at the time of this film, in a variety of 
productions roles. Uh, eventually went on to TV, which I think he did fairly successful. I haven't really been following him, but I see he's still alive and working. <laughs> Is that kind enough? <laughs> uh, co-stars in this. He's pretty good. This is like the... I, I agree with you. It's 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 much better than you think it is. And even if you have a presumption about the movie, it is much better. Then you have an idea. I might be, oh, you might be, that's a movie. Al shouts, he's blind, and blah, blah, blah. He's got a chip on his shoulder. No, it's actually, at its heart, a very sweet movie beneath the crust. So accolades to Martin and Brest for pulling this off. It was actually an older filmmaker, pardon me, an older Hollywood filmmaker, who managed to pull this picture together. He did some, you know, he, he was an older man, but suddenly he he happened to have knocked the ball out of a park for a number of pictures. The first Beverly Hills Cop, this, a couple other things. No one really realized he was already well into his 70s, maybe possibly 80s, until he couldn't get work anymore because of that very same reason. That's another story. Maybe one day we'll tackle Ages of filmmaking? <laughs> yes, you know, it's a thing. It's yeah, a thing. Sure it is. This has a really interesting cast of, again, I mentioned this earlier in the show, familiar faces. They may not be marquee value names, but you will see a lot of people like, I've seen that guy before. I've seen that woman before. So it's nicely cast. You know, I like when a film is cast with, with supporting roles for people that look familiar to you, but they're not stars. The only thing to this film's detriment, it might be over long. But it might it might just be too long for for what for what it is. But otherwise, I, I enjoyed it. It's really good, and yeah, as you said, it's it's better than people think it might be. So his next notable film is Carlito's Way, but unfortunately, yes. you know, I get a lot of these movies from the library system, and they failed us. They said they had it in transit for about a week and a half before this show got aired. So uh, never got to see it. Never saw it back in the day because it was a mob movie. And uh, didn't get to see it here, so if you want to take it. It's very good. It's a very good later De Palma picture, 1993. Now, Pacino is doing Puerto Rican again, but he's doing a, a less severe, uh, <laughs> unlike Scarface, he's doing a less severe Puerto Rican uh, performance. And this is based on a book, I think written by Richard Price, who you name-checked earlier. Richard Price was an author. He worked at Time Magazine a lot, too. Um, he would rewrite stuff that other people had written. So in this case, there was a there was an article by a guy named Evan Torres written for a, some news thing. Richard Price had rewritten this guy's article to be something more bigger. And then Brian De Palma got a got a hold of it and made this film about a career criminal, career criminal. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. Sometimes these things are tongue twisters. Uh, Pacino, and you know, it's a mob thing. I think. What do I have to say really about this? It, you know, in, in essence, it comes off a of Scarface light. It's a little deeper. It's sort of that Donnie Bracco thing, which we're going to get to, I guess. Sean Penn's in this. Penelope Ann Miller, John Leguizamo, Luis Guzman. Vigo, a young Vigo Mortensen is in this. Everybody's playing Hispanics, of course. So is it a good De Palma film? It's an okay De Palma film. It's a good a Pacino movie. It's an okay Pacino movie. I would say that. Basically, next up, at least this next one of note, is Heat in 1995. Michael Mann, most famed for being the man behind Dayglow's style over substance TV cop shows like Miami Vice and Vegas, brings some of that aesthetic to a far more occasional film career. In this case, he blows a full three hours on this workaday crime film that pits Al Pacino's ragged cop with a failing marriage against Robert De Niro's lonely big heist criminal who's just finding love. 
There's a very obvious thematic doubling going on with contrasts and parallels all over the place, as if there were two sides of the same man. They even go to a diner and have a pleasant chat after Pacino pulls the guy over, and the ending makes it seem like, I'm there for you, bro, even after one of them gets gunned down by the other. It's not necessarily homoerotic, but there's a lot of that sort of thing happening throughout. I felt sorry for the younger woman, TV actress Brenneman for De Niro and Wolfen's Diane Venora for Pacino, who had to make out with these two old coots and actually laughed out loud during an early sex scene between the latter. They're both guys who made it big in the 70s, and this is the mid-90s, so you get the picture. Neither one's exactly a spring chicken, and these poor girls have to make out with them like they're hot. The <laughs> best part of the film, Al pulls the third degree and Ashy Judge piece on the side, giving some pop-eyed, gesticulating speech about what a great ass she has, and it seems to go on about how much he enjoys the feminine posterior. Man, after my own heart there. As ever, I thought Pacino outacted De Niro, but they're really two very different styles. Al is always pent-up aggression, a stick of dynamite with a short fuse just waiting to be lit. De Niro, as much as I dislike him, is a quieter, more naturalistic method type, prone to mumbling and casual delivery. The two of them facing off in that diner scene is less a contest of wills than a Rorschach test for viewers. Which style resonates with you? Who do you think took that route? In purely objective terms, both of them outact most everyone else out there, and that's not exactly in question. The film? Eh... Overly bombastic yet boring, with only a few sequences like that crazy heist at the opening that bring any life to the thing whatsoever. Bottom line, same as the Godfather films. This is exactly what I always hated about mob films and such. Americans just kind of suck at these. Give me an Italian knockoff any day of the week. I disagree with you. I actually, believe it or not, I didn't catch up to this too much later, and I really like this. I like this so much I watch it twice in a row. Really? <gasps> uh, there goes six hours of my life. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I I find Michael Mann movies problematic. I, I like a lot of his films that people hate, and I hate a lot of his films that people like. So I won't go into details there for the Michael Mann fans. Or Collateral is a really, really good Tom Cruise movie, and I will fight anyone who says otherwise. <laughs> um, now for this, <laughs> it's funny how you, you stuck on uh, Amy Brenneman and the other girl. <laughs> That's interesting because, yeah, Al, Al's relationship with her is bizarre, the way they shoot that. And yeah. I mean, there's two basically younger girls with two guys that are, you know, they're at best middle-aged, maybe older. I was like, yeah, okay. And and Al's very abusive. Yes. You notice that? Yes, he he's, is. He's abusive. You know, he's trying to be loving. He's abusive. And and I thought, though, with De Niro, I thought he was very loving. True. There was that contrast there. There was that contrast. And at the end, you know, He's like, go, you know, just take the car and go. The the very, I think this was a movie they did not know how to end, and so that that conflagration at the end, that meeting, those two characters, it's dissatisfying in a way because it, yo, I always felt it shouldn't have ended this way. It should have been more open ended. Yep, I agree. You know, not necessarily leaving it open for more or a sequel, perhaps. You know. It's not what I'm saying, but it's just it's a very unsatisfying because it's, it's, it shouldn't have been ended that way. There's a lot of good performances. Dennis Haysbert, man, he's virtually unrecognizable in this. Tom Sizemore, you know, Tom Sizemore, he's good. Early Tom Sizemore. West Duty. Now, Val Kilmer does some good work in this. Pre-becoming insane. Um, <laughs> and, and throat cancer, unfortunately. But, no, it, I, I really like this. I... I I would like to see Michael Mann come back to this. I understand he did a prequel. I don't know. He wrote a prequel. I have no idea how he's approaching this. Um, 
But uh, I, I really like this much more than I thought I would. And uh, so I like it much, much more than you do. I know you're going to want to hit Donnie Brasco. Again, I have not seen it. City Hall? Uh, City Hall's another one. Yeah, City Hall's uh, very disappointing. Harold Becker, who did Sea of Love, which you love, brings uh, Al, John Cusack, Danny Aiello, Martin Landau, Richard Fonda. You know, it's just like, so Al... Is the mayor of New York. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> if only. Tony Fanciosa's in this match. You know it's got to be good, oh, right? <laughs> anyway, it's it's about, like, Italians involved in a shootout and a child killed, passed by. It was signed, like, it's sort of like a cause celebrate thing at the moment, but the movie was made, like, 10 years too late. And it was sort of felt like it was a 10 years too late movie. So, uh, is anybody's performance... Good or bad, I can't hedge on that. I did see it. I just thought it was like, nah. Also following that in 96 was looking for Richard. Al's been big on Shakespeare. And he's he's directed and appeared in a lot of Shakespeare, off-Broadway, on-Broadway. And in 96, he, he released this sort of thing with him on stage. He directed himself as Richard III. It's a, it's a lifetime dream of his to actually try to bring this to film. It's got Alec Baldwin, Estelle Parsons, Kevin Conway, Minota Ryder, Kevin Spacey, that guy, <laughs> uh, and a couple of others. It's it's good. It's overbearing. Unfortunately, Al doing Shakespeare, I think, has to be seen live to be appreciated because otherwise Al doing Shakespeare to the uninitiated is Al bellowing. <laughs> so, yo, I'm not knocking that. You know what I'm saying? But, all right, Donnie Brasco. You saw that? No, that's another one I didn't see. Hey, you bastard. Okay. <laughs> Mike Knoll, who did quite a few good films. Uh, I enjoy his pictures. Uh, Mike Knoll directed Dance with the Stranger, a movie I really like. Four Weddings and a Funeral. Unusually, I like that. 200 Cigarettes, Traffic. A couple of things there. So he did this mall picture, which is like, so now the adult version of Johnny Depp. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I remember Johnny Depp from the TV shows and early, you know, Catch Him Sweet movies. Right before the uh, the pirate thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Before the pirate thing, but not too much before the pirate thing. So we got Michael Madsen, Bruno Kirby, the late Bruno Kirby, uh, and Hesh when she was the thing. James Russo's in this, so you remember he was still knocking about. So this is this is actually pretty good. This is almost De Palma-esque. It's almost like a De Palma movie, not made by De Palma. It's a real mafia type of thing. I think you would like this, actually. Okay. With with Depp playing an undercover FBI agent who looks younger than his years, okay? Not too much. Who gets in with the Bonamo family. You remember the Bonamo family? Yeah, yeah. So here's one guy, and it's Al, and... He's working with him. He's like his right-hand man, left-hand man, however you want to look at it. And so they like what he does. So, of course, there's the usual confliction. Conflict of interest, conflict of thoughts. What am I doing? Am I doing the right thing? I'm in too deep. The whole thing we've seen in trillions of these kind of pictures, going to the police, Yateski. But it's done really well. All the acting is hands-on good. And, you know, I, 
dare I say, Johnny Depp does a really, really good job in this. And now Al does a really, really good job in this. So, yeah, I highly recommend Donnie Brasco. So next up, same year, he does The Devil's Advocate. Pacino mm-hmm. plays of all simplistic illusions. John Milton, a.k.a. Satan, in this weird courtroom drama about how lawyers have no principles with some cheap metaphysics tagged in just for the hell of it. Because all this nonsense about how, of all people, defense attorney Keanu Reeves is sacrificing his principles in marriage to boring Charlize Theron for cash. Hey, can I ask you something? Good. How come Keanu looks older in this movie than he does now? <laughs> good drugs, good Botox, I don't know. <laughs> or is, did he make a deal with the devil? He made, he made a deal with the devil here, who knows? So anyway, he <laughs> sacrifices his principles in his marriage to boring Charlize Theron for cash in a better position at a firm in New York City, where he turns out to be in the employ of Satan. There's a smidgen of omen meets end of days occult nonsense tossed in. People keep hallucinating folks are really demons. Reeves <laughs> commits his wife to a nut house, where she promptly kills herself. There's a weird incest thing thrown in where Pacino wants Reeves to fuck his sister to impregnate her with the Antichrist. I don't know. Someone was smoking a lot of crack when they wrote this weird-ass piece of shit. Films like this leave me wondering why I suggested doing a Pacino show. <laughs> of course, as ever, I'm thinking about his 70s heyday and some of his 80s work. Cinema really went down the crapper when the majors took over exclusively in the early to mid-90s, huh? It's so seldom I find something newer that doesn't involve kitschy zombies, superheroes, or video game adaptations. You can fill a postage stamp with my post-2000 kudos otherwise, and realize that even among those limited genres, it's very much grading on a curve. And right around 94 or 95 is where this endless slide all started. Case very much in point here. About the only thing you could say as a positive is that Al still outacts everyone else in the cast. But your entire competition is pervy Jeffrey Jones, Coach Craig T. Nelson, and Ted S. Preston Esquire. Everybody off the bus! That's not saying a whole hell of a lot. <laughs> so what's your take? <laughs> well, Al does act, outact everyone. And it's, it's, it's strangely incoherent movie considering that I really do like a majority of Taylor Hackford's films. Uh, I like The Idolmaker. It's a sweet movie. I love that movie. I will admit to liking An Officer and Gentleman. I will admit to liking Against All Odds, White Knights, La Bamba, Hell Hill, Rock and Roll. I mean, the guy's, the guy's got a couple of good pictures. He even did Ray, the Ray Charles film with Jamie Foxx, which actually is decent. After that, eesh. But... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and actually, before the devil, the devil's acid, there was like three or four or five years of yeesh. So I, I'm not quite sure what's going on with that. I don't know if he's a drug <laughs> casualty or if he's been lambasted in Hollywood and not allowed. But this is a strange film. It, it's hard to. This is what is that thing? The Devil and Daniel Webster, right? The Devil and Daniel Webster, Ad Infinitum. It's done, redo, rebooted, rebooted, blah blah blah. Ad Infinitum. Actually, and I'll say it again. Keanu Reeves looked older than. Oh, <laughs> uh, what year are we talking about? Ninety-seven, twenty years ago. So what's going on with that? <laughs> he looks, and you know, I saw John Wick three the other night. I'm like, I still can't catch my breath. So I was like, how does this guy do this? So. I don't know. <laughs> Him and Tom Cruise. I'm th- yeah, no. Sh- Tom Cruise show coming up. So <laughs> I do we one. can do that. We, we can, can do, do that. that because I like Tom Cruise. Um, so, and I like Keanu Reeves. So <laughs> he's the last. <laughs> that, he's always going to be Ted S. Preston Esquire to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> not that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's another story. <laughs> 
That's me, you dirty bastard. You. We don't know about Keanu Reeves. <laughs> doesn't matter. He's fun. So this is a strange movie. And, yeah, it, it's, it harkens back to Daniel and Devil, the Daniel and Devil website. The Devil and Daniel website. Yes, well, we you both know the vibe. About. Yes, you got the first time. And it's just, you got names, you got faces. It's just, I don't know. And then Al's. As Satan is bellowing. So whenever you have Al Pacino bellowing, you know, it's sort of like, uh-oh. <sighs> so, next. All right. Well, next up, the one you would probably want to tackle is Any Given Sunday. I think it's a football movie. I didn't bother. Do you have anything to say about Insider, Any Given Sunday, or Chinese Coffee? Well, The Insider is a, a picture, another Michael Mann movie. You know, they, they work together on Heat. But it's about journalists and Pacino plays a journalist, and Christopher Plummer's playing Mike Wallace, and Russell Crowe, before he weighed 400 pounds, is playing somebody else, Jeffrey Wingan, and it's a great cast. I just find docudramas about real-life news people to be rather boring. Yeah, boring. Uh, it's not like they're investigative journalists like in the 70s. They're just, you know, talking heads. Yeah, it's a talking heads thing. And even though they, their lives might have had something really interesting going on, you know, even if they've been working 30, 40 years, it's like, it's not like, um, it's no touchstones. And also they tried to sell it as something it wasn't. So it, it didn't really work for me. Any given Sunday, Oliver Stone, your hero, doing a <laughs> football movie. Um, Dennis Quaid. Cameron Diaz, James Woods, Jamie Foxx. Actually, I thought it was okay. I didn't think it was terrible. Uh, another one of your heroes, Charlton Heston, is in it. Um, Why are these guys my heroes? <laughs> I'm just fucking with you, man. <laughs> I mean, Stone is problematic, but I like some of his scripts. Now I'm messing with you. I'm I certainly like Charlton Heston, at least in the early days, when he's doing his 70s uh, sci-fi shit. <laughs> I, I didn't see Chinese Coffee. I think I think it was like a low-budget picture because it actually was directed by him, so I may have missed it, and I'm quite sure I did. Uh, Insomnia. Now, I like that. Did you see that? Yes, I did. I called this one Girl with a Dragon Tattoo Light. Instead of cold Swedish-set serial killings, this time you get cold Norwegian-set serial killings, which in the American remake are transplanted to Alaska. Instead of a basement torture killer with ties to everyone in an isolated island village and secrets and all that stuff you uncover, here you get killings in an isolated Arctic town. Did I mention it's from the guy behind the Christian Bale Batman movies? The twist here is that Pacino's an aging cop who makes mistakes and has to cover them up to keep himself from getting bounced from the force. Here he shoots his new partner while chasing a suspect through the fog, so of course he tampers with evidence to clear himself. The big twist is that the killer uses this against him throughout, although there is a quote redemptive ending where he stops his biggest fangirl, the new karate kid herself, Hilary Swank, from fudging the evidence in his favor. The weirdest element of this one is they cast Robin Williams as the killer, which I think is the only such role he did outside that stalker film 24-hour photo before he killed himself. Bottom line, it's very dry, and it's designed to appeal more to the CSI crowd than mainstream or cult film fans. It's got atmospheric settings, to be sure, and Williams and Swank are both fine in their roles, but Al's looking kind of tired, and his character only makes the sheer dreariness of this one all the more pronounced. Oh, I really liked it. It was a remake of a, I believe, a Swedish film. Uh, Norwegian, sorry. A remake of a 1997 Norwegian film, same name, which was uh, received some acclaim. I didn't see that. I saw this. I thought it was really good. Uh, well, Al's supposed to be tired because he's coming off a bad case, which didn't work out well, and he's coming off of insomnia. And he says repeatedly in the movie, 
I haven't slept. I haven't slept. I haven't slept. So as the movie goes on, you realize he hasn't slept for nights, days. So Robin Williams is very good as the suspect. We'll believe it at that. Uh, yeah, you're right. 24-hour photo was the only other thing I kind of recall he did of this nature. And, you know, it kind of points out, I think people knew more about Robin Williams than they let on prior to his passing about his personal nature because he did very, very well in these dark roles. And I, I like this film. I, you know, it was not a fantastic, great movie. I thought Al Pacino was really great. Yes, he looks tired. He's supposed to be tired. I, I'm not quite sure about the denouement of the film, the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I didn't like it. I didn't think it fit the role. Yeah, there His was character wouldn't have done that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I agree with you. There's something going on at the end of the movie that just I wouldn't have agreed with, but whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's a couple more that I haven't seen. S1M0NE, people I know in the recruit, but then we come to something really infamous. So anything you mm-hmm. say about those three or... I, I saw people I know. I thought it was okay. It's like a star fucking thing. He played a publicist in that. I was kind of disappointed. The recruit was actually not too bad. Roger Donaldson, who had just come off of, of uh, a Bond picture with uh, Pierce Brosnan, had done that. And Al plays like a FBI, CIA guy who gets Colin Farrell hard. Bridget Monaghan, who looks like so hot in this. It's like a spy thing, a spy thriller. It's actually not bad, but she was pretty good in it. Not bellowing so much, and it's <laughs> it's better than you would think. So I would say that. Angels in America? That's actually a really famous... They were really pushing that for a while off-off-Broadway, and I think it actually made it to Broadway. It's uh, Broadway. It was a... More or less about the gay community, and we had to deal with AIDS, and mm. it was really vetted. I mean, anybody that was around at the time knows at least the name or seen the commercials for Angels in America. I haven't seen it myself, but... Oh, I saw I saw it. Yeah, it's really good. It's powerful. It plays Roy Cohn, who nobody liked. But you want to talk about Giggly. Yeah, oh boy. I actually attempted to skim through this noted stinker. Yet another universally hated Sony Pictures bottom-of-the-barrel scraper like Rob Schneider's The Animal. Remember the fake press reviews on that one? During the ridiculously brief Benefer Mark I flirtation between a just-post-Daredevil and Kevin Smith film Ben Affleck and former fly girl Jennifer Lopez, who for the only time in her film career isn't playing a sassy maid, they decided to make this atrocity to cinema, which was so terrible... Its director hasn't made a film since, since 2003. It's a half-assed mob movie, which is mostly one of those touching family film bullshit films like Lorenzo's Oil or whatever, because about 90% of it is Affleck's low-rank con man gangster type and Lopez's low-rank con woman gangster type playing mom and dad to a retarded kid. Seriously. Oh, and of course, the touching romance that develops between the two leads, despite her supposedly being into girls. Along the way, you get a few scenes supposed to be played for sex, but it just kind of fall flat in that patented, safe Hollywood big-budget manner. He talks to her while she does yoga, which leads to some suggestive poses. They share a bed, clothed, and nothing happens, until they finally get it on, and despite her taking top and pinning his wrists, there's not much heat to it. Affleck looks stoned and bored throughout. No wonder they didn't stay a thing. What self-respecting Latina would be satisfied by such a cold fish? Little abusive munchkin that he is. No wonder she went for... Who was that guy? Uh, no, the baseball guy. No. The baseball the guy. Son or whatever of uh, Julio Iglesias. Yeah, but he's dead. He's, he's gay, whatever his name is. No, but she went for that little guy, Luis Miguel. And he was really... 
Yeah, he was like beating the shit out of her and stuff. But even so, you could see her going for him over this guy because he was just laying there stone. But uh. <laughs> no, but Ben Ben's a noted alcoholic. You know, right? No, he is. The only moment of note here is that Al Pacino cashes a paycheck by dropping in for less than ten minutes of screen time towards the end and teaches these losers what a real actor instead of a hyped-up celebrity on film actually is. He pulls the usual poorly written by the numbers, genial but crazy and dangerous mob boss shtick, but manages to transcend the hack script by little bits of business and character ticks that actually leave him coming off pretty damn scary. Laugh if you want, but you wouldn't want to be beholden to this fucking guy. Ten minutes or less, the only part of a two-hour-plus movie that even tries to work. The director hasn't worked since 2003. Think about it. Well, he's, the director's an elderly guy, so I'll leave it at that. I mentioned Martin Best before. He's an older gentleman, so this this killed his career anyways. So uh, next up, he does The Merchant of Venice. You mentioned the Shakespeare thing. Two for the money, 88 minutes, and then one that we'll talk about. All right, 88 minutes is not bad, not terrible, not terrific either. John Abnett, who done some decent thriller-type pictures in the 90s, did this with Al as a schoolteacher. No, not a schoolteacher, professor, who most of his his curriculum seems to be full of uh, hot young females. (laughs) and, and like certain psychiatric, medical, maybe law type things going on. This is serial killer going after his students. And he's kind of pinpointing and suggesting that Al's, had, Al's character has had relations with these it girls. It's pretty maze on a road done for the 90s. Yes, it is. <laughs> I love that. Yes, song. it is. And, 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 and it's actually not bad. It's not bad. Al's kind of frantic and he's running around town. Neil McDonough. Is, is, is the guy after him. And uh, some, you know, A.B. Brenneman, where the hell has she been for like 15 years, pops up. Deborah Kara Unger, Alicia Wett, Lili Sobieski. I mean, they really went into the name bag and picked some names. Like, hey, this name's familiar. So <laughs> I guess these people in parts. It's not that bad, though. Uh, why, where does 88 minutes come in? At some point in the film, the serial killer who taunts this guy it's going to kill this girl in 88 minutes unless he does what he wants him to do. So it's not bad. It's actually pretty good in Loophole's Al Pacino movie time. <laughs> yes. So 2007, Ocean's 13. It's the third of the revivalist Ocean's 11 series that George Clooney did, not to be confused with the Rat Pack starring original, that sees our sea of love pairing of Pacino and Ellen Barkin looking a whole hell of a lot older than they did back in 89, huh? Elliot Gould's Rubin gets rooked in a casino venture by sleazy money man Pacino and has a heart attack. His pals in the Clooney entourage decide to fuck with Pacino, but make him lose a lot of money to players on opening night, and hassling the Zagats guy into giving a one-star review. Seriously. As expected, there's a big star fucker cast. These were the sort of non-action hero versions of the Expendables films, with all sorts of big Hollywood names making their way through one of the three, and thanks to Sandra Bullock's distant retake, four films and the usual twists and turns of the heist film. But for me, the most notable thing here is just how much work Parkins had done on her lips, face, and boobs, and how much Al's looking like someone's grandpa at this point. I mean, I used to be hot for this woman back when. She still ain't half bad if you go by old lady standards, but damn, time is rough, huh? <laughs> so what's your take? So Milf- Milfy becomes mature. Yeah, she's huh? still attractive for that, but I mean, jeez. Uh, uh, <laughs> I saw it. I don't remember it, so I can't really come back to that, but I Much more disappointing was Righteous Kill. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah. Righteous Kill was uh, another John Abner. He did, he did the one I just discussed. 88 minutes. 88 minutes. So it reunites 
De Niro and Pacino from Heat. Now, both look a little tired. Both look a little meatier in this. And um, Carla Gugino's in this. Brian Dennehy, which was dug out of a coffin for this. <laughs> uh, John Leguizamo, Donnie Wahlberg. Brian Dennehy, they probably scraped off the floor of a bar. Right, exactly. <laughs> so you have you have a police psychologist and a police detective. So these two guys, you know, they worked so well together in the past Damn, 50 seconds in this. You know it's got to be good, right? <laughs> but, well, do you remember the video game he did? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's been actually in some things that don't, well, not too bad, but we'll get to that. So, anyway, no, don't worry. There won't be a 50 cent show. No, but, there won't. <laughs> I'll make sure but, of that. <laughs> <laughs> but, all that being said, it's just that <laughs> this is not good. They both look tired. That the story is wrote. It's been done before, before, before. And then it looks like Pacino and De Niro are on each other's nerves, even more so than fictionally. Didn't do well. It was not the second coming. And there's that. Then Al takes a couple of years and disappears off the face of the earth and decides to come back as Jack Kirkavarian. <laughs> yeah, the suicide doctor. Yeah. Yes, in uh, a telefilm. You don't know Jack. His performance was good. He altered his face a little bit. He slimmed down dramatically, and he looked much older. I think he may have won a Grammy, uh, Grammy, sorry, an Emmy or something. And a uh, Screen Actors Guild. Oh, no, he won a Golden Globe and a Screen Actors Guild. Yeah, <laughs> he won an Emmy. <laughs> he won an Emmy for that song, How Many People Have I Killed? <laughs> so, uh, wait hurts this movie is the supporting cast. It was like John Goodman, Brenda Vaccaro. I know, right? <laughs> Susan Sarandon. It was just like, we could have cast this with better and more alive people. Um, <laughs> but he was really good in that, and I will say that. Not the kind of movie I would watch for entertainment. Al did appear in The Son of No One in 2011 film by a really small director. It was for Millennium, the, the current canon films. Uh, Channing Tatum played in this, and we don't remember this. It's a Channing Tatum movie showing you how bad it is. Al did not look good in this, so there's that. Uh, he also did a something else he directed, uh, Salome, where he's been filming versions of... Uh, Oscar Wilde Salome. Oscar Wilde Salome for years, and apparently he did several with Jessica Chastain, all nudes for those Jessica Chastain really? fans. Interesting. And so he kind of mixed them together, and he did a mix called Wild Salome. So this is out there, and uh, it was released at the Venice Film Festival. I'm not sure what kind of a release did this get. I did not see it, but I'm noting it for those people like me who may want to check it out. <laughs> Al also appeared. I did not see this because Adam Sandler made a movie – Starring himself twice uh, as himself and as his twin sister. Except Adam Sandler's like 50 and his twin sister would have to be like 50. So, right away, we don't want to see this. So, uh, <laughs> Al's in the movie. I did not see it, so I can't really comment on it. Denner Stand Up Guys, directed by Fisher Stevens. I really did want to see this. I've been having a hard time trying to find it. It was on Netflix, and then it was on Amazon, then it disappeared. Chris Walken stars in this movie. Some old, and some old-time 
friends, gangster guys, uh, Alan Arkin, Pacino, who get together and they have to do, they have to off one of their buddies. And it's like supposed to be dramedy, comedy kind of thing. I'm not sure. It sounds very interesting to me. I would like to see it, but it's been really difficult to find. It's good that you clarify between you know, doing one of their buddies and offing one of their buddies because you know certain sectors of our audience may be like, ooh, okay, I want to see that. Offing, offing, offing. So, you know he played Phil Spector in Phil Spector. I think it was HBO. Um, Helen Mirren played somebody, God knows. Was she naked? <laughs> she always gets naked in these movies. <laughs> I don't know. It was like two years ago, so it's a good question. You will have to see it. So, it's... Phil's, it's called Spectre, Al Pacino playing Phil Spectre. I saw portions of it. I couldn't sit through it because I was like, well, Al doesn't look anything like Phil Spectre. So, so where does that leave us? I'm going to cherry pick now. The last thing I saw was Hangman, which is two years old. Broke the guy, guy named Johnny Martin. A lot of people hate this film, but Al still looked like Al. He was, you know, he's ever since 88 minutes. He's been dying his hair jet black. He's been doing the goatee thing. He still pretty much looks like Al. It's a cop thriller. A lot of people hated this movie. I think, what were you expecting? You know, cop following a serial killer, whatever. So he did the Joe Paterno movie, which I did not see, right? Because I have no interest. I'm sorry. <laughs> and then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I saw Al Pacino's portion. And I was surprised. Um, so I just watched this the other night on, I'm not going to say, a special streaming thing. And, um, so Al shows up in the first half hour as this Jewish agent. And I didn't realize how much shorter he'd become. He was. So, you know, Brad Pitt's a big guy. But Al scenes with Leonardo DiCaprio, who towers over this guy. And so there's that. And then Al suddenly looks much older. So here's the thing we're going to get to now. So for the past maybe 10 years, Al Pacino's been dyeing his hair, been keeping the beard, been keeping the goatee thing. He's been trying to keep up the impression of being younger. And for some reason, suddenly he's decided to let it go. And so he's 79 now. So he just looks like an old Jewish agent in this movie. And he just seems like bereft of energy, etc. It was a bit of a shock. Small part. Maybe five minutes of screen time. So that leads us to the Irishman, Irishman coming out next year, which is a Scorsese picture. And supposedly the first time Scorsese will direct Al De Niro and Joe Pesky and everybody else together. And so Al plays Jimmy Hoffa. So he shaved off his head, let the hair grow back in, put on a ton of weight, and totally looks unrecognizable. So it's just like, I know you're hit and miss on some Scorsese movies, maybe leaning more toward the miss for whatever, but I I do like quite a few of them, not all of them. I understand why. I do understand why. He's a technician for sure. But uh, from what I saw, this this could be very interesting. But yeah, it was a big shock seeing Al Pacino's Jimmy Hoffa. I'm like, I can see you maybe picking Joe Pesky or Pesci as Jimmy Hoffa, but how? But where do you see him? It's just like, oh, my God. It makes you feel old. So uh, I, that's what I got. That's what I got for Al. Yeah. 
So, yeah, I mean, as you can see, I mean, it's kind of hit or miss in a lot of respects. I mean, I know you have more of a fondness for a lot of his mob films and some of his strange things. I tend to prefer him where he was more of some measure of pushing the envelope and being anti-authoritarian, anti-establishment, anti-hero, if you will. You know, everything from Serpico to Dorothy Afternoon and just Frog Cruising. And then later on, Sea of Love is a big one for me. You know, Seth of a Woman actually holds up really well. And even in crap, like I said, like even in Jiggly, you could see him as like, okay, yeah, he's putting in a strong performance. I like Al as a performer, period. I think he's a very good actor. And to the extent that people use method acting, he does it right. You know, he actually takes the best parts of it and throws himself into the damn role. I don't think he usually gets subsumed by it, though, you know, cruising is a, a question in both of our minds <laughs> for a lot of reasons. But, you know, nonetheless, the guy is an amazing actor, and you can't take that away from him. And he's been in some really, really good movies that were, at the time, major cultural touch points for a generation. You can't take that away from him. Some of them for notoriety, like Cruising or Scarface, and others just for, I don't know, hitting the right notes with people, like Injustice for All and certainly with Dog Day Afternoon. I think this guy is an amazing actor. He's definitely one of the one of our best living actors all around. And I, I yes, think if you throw yes. him in almost anything, you know, if he doesn't just degenerate into bellowing or not take it too seriously or whatever, he can pull it off. I mean, yeah, it's ridiculous thinking of him as Jimmy Hoffa, but if anybody can do something that radical and that's different from them, he's the guy that can do it. I mean, I, I have no doubts in his ability. Oh, what? The, yeah, and and I I think that's why maybe Scorsese hired him for that part. Just said, you know what? I never put you in a, one of my movies, and I never put you in one of my movies with these other guys. And, oh, Harvey Cartel's in it, too. So this is the role I have for you. And he probably thought about it and said, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to probably want to look my age and get a ton of weight, shave off my hair. <laughs> but, you know, it's that method acting thing, too, you know? When you say Kaitel yeah. was in it, I was like, well, he's another one. But no, he's more of one of those edgy guys like uh, Mickey Rourke, if you will, that, you know, do you like him? Do you not like him? He really pushes it out. He, he takes the envelope and shoves it way the hell outside. And, you know, is he really throwing himself in in the wrong way method? Or is he just, you know, that's powerful and crazy of an actor that's kind of in the viewer's eyes. And, of course, you know, behind the scenes, there's publicists or whatever. Well, but, but still, can you imagine a movie with all these four guys? Oh, yeah. It's like, wow. It's crazy. That, that's really top-tier talent, or at least certainly top-tier. Uh, everybody could freak out in any given moment. A lot of time bombs in there. <laughs> <laughs> so there's the plus for that. But, yeah, I mean... Well, well, it reminds me of watching Shine a Light, the, the one-and-done Scorsese Stones thing, where he did that concert in the Beacon Theater in New York a couple of years ago. He's like, it's like Lifetime. It's on the disc. And he's like, I don't have a set list. I don't have a set list. Where's the set list? <laughs> They'll give you the set list when we go live, when the lights go on. What do you mean? Where did I put the cameras? <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of thing. These guys can all show up, script and no scripts, you know, scripted, scripted lines, no script, no scripted lines, and they can just go like, I'm going to do it this exactly. way. Exactly. Fuck the direction. Yeah. All you got to do is put the camera on them. Point the camera at yeah. me. There we go. There we go. And that's the kind of thing that you get with Al. He is one of those kind of actors where it's, I don't know that he is, you know, more spontaneous and ad-libby, but he certainly is strong enough that you can just trust him and he's going to make it work no matter what the role is. And that's kind of the case here, even films that I don't really care for. You know, the worst thing you could say about the Godfather films are that, you know, I don't really like mob films. 
is that he played it less strongly, less Pacino-esque than his other roles, and that's what disappointed me about them. But, you know, can you say, are they shit films? No, not at all. It's just, you know, I don't care for them because of that and because I don't really like mom films. So it's, it's a lot to be said for this guy. And, you know, like you said, he's in his 70s. He's still doing it, so he's still got it. So more power to him. All right. That's our show. All right, so thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed a little drawing room chat on Al Pacino. Next time, I believe you said, was it John Saxon? Yes, I think John Saxon. Okay, so next time we'll be talking John Saxon. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker, musician, look, join us in there. Drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter, at weirdscenes1, and our site on Podbean, thirdeyecinema.podbean.com. We're also on iTunes, itunes.apple.com. If you're going to be pedantic about it, it's U.S. Podcast, Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast, ID 553-402044. Otherwise, just look us up by Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So any final closing notes? Yeah, uh, we I, we both hope you enjoy listening to the show and had fun listening. Uh, well, have fun listening. <laughs> hope you enjoyed the show. Actually, and had fun listening. And tune in next time for John Saxon. Hope you've been enjoying all the shows as we have our new incarnation of our show where we've been discussing actors, actresses, character actresses, lead actors, actresses, action stars, because we've been picking and choosing, you know, people we really like and uh, Mm -hmm. people that had an impression upon us. Yeah, because if you go back and listen to our earlier shows, you'll hear more genre takes and whatever else. And more recently, even though we still do those on occasion, it's been more of uh, people we like and following them individually through their careers. And we touch on a lot of stuff we might not naturally touch on, things that are a little more mainstream, things that are a little more outside of cult cinema, if you will. So uh, hopefully you enjoy them. I'm sure a lot of you do from the feedback that I hear. Keep the support coming, and if you have any uh, suggestions or any filmmakers are out there that are interested in joining us, like I said, drop us a line. Anything else you want to say? No, no. Oh, I did see a comment. Somebody said, are you interviewing Van Damme? And I said, and you said, and you, no, you had a good response, but I was like, yeah, I wish. But yeah. <laughs> the thing is, if I was interviewing people still, that was a third eye thing. Obviously, I would get people on there, filmmakers, musicians, whatever, and we go through a career like this. This is more of just us, us two critics and aficionados of film and our stuff, just kind of talking about their careers and whatever dissecting and analyzing and have some fun with it but you know we're certainly open if somebody's out there that wants to join us you know we certainly love to have you and that goes for you too Jean-Claude <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll do it again for you yeah, yeah. definitely <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I guess that's our show for today alright thank you all for listening
every Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune into Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurd and look at the headlines, from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner and fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the hated, the 
career and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television, right here on Weird Seeds Inside the Goldmine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network. Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello. Hello there. How you doing? I'm doing all right. How yeah. is the new cat? The kitten? Yeah, she's, uh, I have the marks all over my legs to prove she wakes me up around 2.33 a.m. <laughs> playing with the toys on bed and scratching out of my legs. <laughs> Hydrogen peroxide comes in very handy. Yeah, I stick to iodine, but yeah, peroxide will probably leave you with less orange. Uh, you won't look like you're a Native American running around. <laughs> yeah, I was in a grocery store this morning and I saw an older gentleman, you know, doing his shopping, and he had like these scratches and iodine all over him. I was about to say, "Hey, you got a cat?" <laughs> Either that or a feisty wife. <laughs> I prefer the feisty wife, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> more, Marvin, more. No, but actually, actually, last night she calmed down a lot. So uh, I'm trying to get her to be active, like she sleeps during the day, you yeah. know. And I'm trying to get her. Well, nobody's here, so I'm trying to get her active, like keep her going. So like at least some of the night she'll sleep. So it, it seemed to work last night. So let's say cats are nocturnal. They're gonna be up at 3 a.m. no matter what. They are. They are. Uh, but I got some, like, cheap Amazon cat things and toys and shit, so uh, <laughs> she could be active. So did you name the cat? No, they did it to shelter. <laughs> uh, Is that why you picked the... her? <laughs> Actually, I was going for this orange cat. It was uh, a tad hefty, but not too much. For his age, she was. They said one year, and... The missus poked him through the back of the cage, and he hissed. And she goes, oh, he don't like me. I said, why the hell did you poke him? Yeah, right. But she liked this one. And so, you know, we thought about it. It's okay, we'll give it a shot. Because this was a kitten. And they had called her Bowie because of the blue eye and the green eye, which depends on, you know, the lighting. Yeah, it was hard to see it in those shots, but we finally saw it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like all of a sudden it's like it's there all the time. It's it's just I don't know what it is, um, but from a dis- different rescue. Now here's the thing: we contacted a place that was pretty nearby the house, and they never got back to me. And some of the Yelp reviews said they never get back to you. And about three days later, they did. But I already made the commitment to go do this. So they said, please text this other person. So I did. So we picked up Bowie last Sunday, and but Saturday we went to this spot near the house. And I tell you, nice house. You go inside, they have like 100 cats. And they're living there, you know. And some are <laughs> blind and some are elderly. It was kind of sad, you know. I can see why they call it Final Rescue. But there were two really nice ones. One was only a year old. Looks like Bowie. But it's a male, and she's not fixed yet. And though they say their cats are spayed and neutered, you know, you don't want to take the chance. So there was Gia, about, they say they claim four years old. It's the same breed as Stella, but it doesn't look like her. So I figured, you know, maybe an older female cat would probably might work better. 
you know, she'll swat when she doesn't want to be bothered. But, you know, as for two high-strung things right now, you know, it may not work. So we're probably going to pick her up next week if all goes well. Oh, no, you're giving up the cat? No, no. Oh, okay. That's a companion. Okay. <laughs> you got to be yeah, careful, no. though, because we have one that's uh, also a tortie, and I had her first. And then we got another one that was, uh, the woman was, it was a long story, but the rescue ended up uh, closing up and moving down to Florida or whatever. And uh, it became a thing. One of these cats had attached to me when they said that nobody else really attached to it. It was kind of hiding out all the time. Uh, and I was thinking about doing it, and I was like, well, I don't know, will it mess things up? Because you got to worry when you got a couple of cats, you know, how they're going to get along. Right. I was like thinking about doing it, and then they got a breakout there because you know they got a lot of cats down there, whatever. And they hit, I think it was like a ringworm breakout or something. Uh, oh, when they get that yeah. stuff around the eyes. So I was like, okay, wait a while, but so we can get this cleared up. And it took a couple of months because the one kept passing to the other one, passed to the other one, passed to the other one. So finally, that's all done. And I'm like, geez, I don't know, should we do it? Should we not do it? And he's like, look, if you don't take it, it's going up to this other. You have a whole bunch of them up to a shelter in another state, like two states up. It's like, all right, I guess we're gonna try it. So we took her home and fostered her, and of course, it was instantaneous. Like, fine, okay, we'll keep her. But even though she's great and my original cat's great, the original one hates her, and it makes it very difficult to try to. Even when the one comes around the cuddle or whatever, the other one comes around and starts like swatting at her, or she might pop out of nowhere and hiss at her. So you got to be careful with that. Yeah. Well, Hopefully, it'll yeah, work out for the, you. But no, no, I, I got you. And uh, the cool thing that I liked about this place is they had they, they will allow before we exchange funds. And it's a very reasonable one twenty five a two a two week tryout. So I mean that's you'll know in a few days. Yeah, you're definitely yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, I I I just think that. I could be wrong, you know, and so you know I would be the first to say oh, I was wrong, but. You know, maybe an older, different breed, but still, since it's still a kitten at X amount of months, it'll work, you know? Yeah, I'm hoping for that. I mean, you know, sometimes they just need a companion, like you said. They get along well. Like the older cat that we have is fine with the original one I was talking about that gets pissed Mm -hmm. off the young one. But these two just like oil and water. (laughs) I don't know why. Well, the, the other one, Tommy, which looks like her, which is the one I was kind of leaning toward, but I know he's a male. When we went to the spot, I'll, I'll actually send you a picture. I still have it on my phone when we went there of at least their table by the window where there's about 30 cats. I'll send you that later. Yeah, he, thank God I was wearing jeans, right? He clawed his way up to my body. <laughs> and I was like, ah, ah, okay, this is cool. <laughs> I was like, all right, he's sweet, y'all. Yeah. It's like, take me, man, take me, y'all. <laughs> Um, so it's funny because on their website, on the pet finders, there were two we were interested in. One looked a lot older in person and the other one was disinterested in people. You could tell. Yeah. She was like, yeah, so, (laughs) so, uh, that's why we're like, okay, let's see what else you got. Yeah. Three Um, out of the five cats that I had, you know, because, you know, a couple of them are dead now. You know, we had them for like a decade plus. I think they all died around 15, to be honest with you. Three out of these five were all ones that came to us. Like, we're we're looking around, like, I don't know, how's this one, how's that one? And they just, like, ran right to you and wouldn't let go, kind of like the one you're talking about there. So, definitely something to think about right there. If he continues to do that, it's like, hmm, maybe that's the one for you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, not both of these did. Yeah, both of these did. Uh, there was a blind cat. You could see he had um, 
cataracts? Yes, he had cataracts, and you know, so you know, you know how to approach them when they can't see. And he was so sweet, but that's, I, you know, I was, it's heartbreaking, you know. And like, I would take him in a heartbeat, which is, it's a lot of work, you know, it's a lot of work. And you, I'm thinking, you know, I just went through, uh, and it's still not gone. You know, oh, no, really, that's really recent. Jeez, come on. Well, it's a month though, you know, and and. I, I figured, okay, you know, was, I could do this. And so, but yeah, that's a lot of work because you have to really, with the food and the litter box, you know, yeah. he's a sweet cat. But I think they will keep him until his time comes. You know, I, I really, there there was this, so the mysterious person on the internet and the mysterious person I was texting, neither one was there when we went to the place. So there's this goth girl. <laughs> but she knew every cat. And she knew every cat's name and what their likes and dislikes. So, you know, it was kind of impressive, though. Whoever they hired was there to do this thing. Yeah. They might not be hired. My, my wife used to work on one of these shelters, and it's you know, a lot of more volunteers. Oh, right. You, you're, you're probably right. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably no pay. You know, because, well, I said, well, where's so-and-so? What was her name? Deanna. Oh, she works like 40 hours a week because she's trying to make money to feed everybody. I said, wow. No. So yeah, uh, tune in next week. <laughs> I, and just the, keep hmm? your wife away from touching the fu spot, like you said she did before. <laughs> well, okay. So at this other place downtown JC, they had um, cloths over the back of the cage. The front was open and the top was open, but lifted the back of the cloth. <laughs> <laughs> And touch their haunches, exactly. You don't want to do that. They do get pissed off at this. Yeah, yeah, and I made a mistake of telling that the major domo cat person. Oh, Don, Johnny's so sweet. Uh, well, uh, I guess not. Why? <laughs> she goes, why'd you do that? I said, okay, change the subject. <laughs> All right, so you want to test this? Yeah. Okay, test this, and we'll get on to Al. Okay. 